The Gun Dog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by Onyx Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the Onyx Hunt app from your phone's app store today and use my promo code GDN20 for 20% off your Onyx subscription. If you want to get the most of your dog in your training sessions, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. Yukonuba's new premium performance lineup is built with the nutrients dogs need to help unleash their maximum potential. That starts with providing energy that matches their efforts, supporting optimal nutrient delivery, and supporting post-exercise recovery. Check out the new Yukonuba premium performance lineup and find your dog's fuel at yukanubasportingdog.com. A fine shotgun is itself a work of art as individual as its owner. Why choose an AYA? Well, every AYA gun is handmade uh, by our master gun makers with meticulous attention and precision. Each constituent part is carefully shaped and little by little, the parts come together until a perfect hole is created. Barrel, action, locks, trigger, stock, foreign. An AYA gun is a marvel of gun making engineering, a coming together of perfectly fitted and calibrated parts to ensure an unequaled experience with a reliability and longevity which defy the passing of time. Choose AYA today. And I want to bring in our next newest sponsor, guys, Biomatrix Supplements. Uh, my buddy, Andrew Bozeman, down at Deagle Plantation, where we just were shooting some stuff for Orvis, is also an avid user um, of Biomatrix. And I really like them because their products not only work for dogs, they've got products for horses as well. They're very heavily invested in the equine community, um, the working horse and, and working dog community. Biomatrix specializes in all natural products created to maximize the health and performance of your animals started by veterinarians biomatrix products are made with only scientifically proven ingredients biomatrix knows how important a relationship with your horses and dogs are because they ride and they work dogs just as well as we do um, and so the, of course they got hands and feet on the ground last time i checked i was speaking to the representative julie younce and she was actually at a um an equestrian competition recently biomatrix knows that using the correct supplement with the appropriate ingredients not only maximizes performance but helps to provide the best quality quality of life for your horses and dogs so check them out at biomatrix-supplements.com and check this out while you are checking out the biomatrix website go ahead and purchase you some biomatrix products to pair with your dog food preferably yukonuba use my promo code gundog10 for 10 percent off your entire first order that's capital g-u-n-d-o-g one zero for 10 percent off your first order at checkout thanks so much guys and of course i always want to thank my my affiliates lion country supply dakota 283 kennels and garmin fishing hunt for always supporting the podcast and 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 just being again role models and leaders in this community and and really bringing bringing new products into the world upland world by storm so thank you guys as always and i'm looking forward to getting into this podcast all right, guys. Well, 
this is a separate day that I'm recording this piece on this uh, podcast. I'm recording the episodes in this episode in like a, a couple of chunks, I guess. Because um, I kind of had a lot of stuff going on, you know, as of late. And I'm, I, uh, I just want to share in that joy, I guess. But I am uh, finishing up a shoot with Orvis right now. And that's been really dope. I want to say thank you to Filson, you know, for all the work that we've done together and the opportunities there um, that have, you know, kind of popped up as of late. And, uh, you know, just looking back on those, man, on these events is just super cool. Um, But again, I am officially in the new house, in the new studio, and Still kind of getting everything organized, but, it, you know, slowly but surely. And that's kind of the other, you know, thing about getting this episode out. But I had a couple of things going on and changes and new additions to the team. So uh, yesterday I got this dog that uh, Curtis Brooks gave me, Curtis Brooks Sr., um, my buddy down in Thomasville, part of the uh, Georgia, Florida Shooting Dog Handlers Club, and vice president. And... Uh, you know, he and I take jabs at each other all the time, and we are, you know, just always going and, and, and looking forward to running in a field trial together. Hint, hint, wink, wink. So, either way, that's still my buddy. And he wanted to give me a dog of his that is in his kennel that, you know, had just he just doesn't have enough time to work. Um, Cause he knew I was looking for another dog um, just to kind of, you know, to, to get into guiding, not get into guiding, but like to, to have more dog power. What am I talking about getting into guiding to have more dog power? So he knew I was looking for another dog um, and was, and, and was also this cute dog that I got this female, this black and white female that I also got um, a couple of weeks ago um, from my buddy, uh, George, I'm just not really vibing with her. So I'm going to send her back to George. And I ended up getting this dog from uh, this black and, and I'm sorry, this uh, white and orange male, one year old from Curtis. Q was four and she just didn't have enough point in her. She, uh, she doesn't have a mind of a hunting dog. She just doesn't. You know, you could mess with her and get her to point, but it just wasn't, it wasn't, it, it's not what, what gets the job done, whether it be guiding or whether it be field trialing or in that case, I, uh, I messed around and dropped a bird right next to the dog and she just was totally disinterested. So, you know, that happens and, and, and you try things out, but, um, you know, I think George is going to work you know, work with her a bit or keep her around or do something, but she's out of uh, Champion Miller's speed dial. She's a daughter of his. And just, she might have been just been the odd one out that might have just struck out. And, and and you get stuff like that, even with these top-tier pedigrees. You just get stuff like that. But anyway, um, so I'm going to send her back this week. And this new dog from Curtis, oh, man. I, I'm I'm loving him. His name is uh, Jughead. Yeah. 
I didn't name the dog. That was Curtis. That was his unofficial name that I'm going to then make official. So I asked him, I said, Curtis, why do you, uh, why you call that dog Jughead? He was like, <laughs> he was like, I don't know. He's just big. He was like, and that's just the thing that I think about when I walk into the kennel. He's a big dog. He's a big one-year-old male. Um, and he is very nice, very stylish on point. Um, 12 o'clock tail, bone straight. I mean, all the style in the world, all the potential in the world. Um, so I wanted to to thank Curtis and give him a shout out for that dog. Um, I'm definitely going to keep that dog. Um, he's got all the, the things that I like. So, uh, and I'm curious to know what he's coming out of. Um, I'm going to, when I get his pedigree papers back, um, I'd be curious to, to see that. Um, Anne is also coming along really well. Um, you know, she is, it's, it's about right time for her to get some training in and, and, you know, just to start pushing her a little bit. So that's kind of where I am with her. She's still, uh, She's still barking and chasing dogs every so often during the hunt. And then she'll kind of pull off, go do her thing. And when she finds birds, she finds birds now. So, but I I think there's that still lack of security in herself to not chase other dogs and bark for a little bit. I, I... I'm not sure. It sounds like a, a confidence issue that I'm, I'm, of course, working through. Hang on one second. I had to grab my natty light. So, um, yeah, man. But outside of that, uh, yesterday, the rest of the club, the rest of the Black Handlers Club, we all got together um, for... Enough for for this project that I'm working on right now, and man, did we have a time! We uh, and, and we of course we had a chance to put dogs on the ground. We did it at Decal Plantation, so I also want to give it a give a, a a huge shout out to Andrew Bozeman, who definitely <laughs> definitely gave us a good time, gave us a wonderful place to run our dogs and, 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 and get dogs on the ground and get good bird work. Um, it was cool. It was kind of, it. I guess what it, what really feels good is the camaraderie that people talk about all the time. And I just think about it. Uh, Cause the, 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 the Orvis crew that was here, um, I think about it and that's something they mentioned a lot is witnessing the camaraderie and brotherhood um you know that we kind of all have within this club and it's really cool to think about you know um everybody put their best dogs on the ground and 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 we simulated a field trial you know we can't really run one right now but it was just good to get together and and kind of it's kind of like a scrimmage almost um it, it, it was almost like a scrimmage in a way. You know, we ran dogs, corrected them when we needed to be, you know. Um, we put out birds for this one um, just to kind of supplement the wild birds that we, you know, already were kind of working towards. But all, all in all, it was just really, really fun. But, you know, 
I'm really excited about this new dog, Jughead. He's a powerful dude. I mean, all the drive in the world. So, I mean, he's like a freight train, man. So that's kind of, you know, that's been the uh, the first part of the trip. This next part of the trip was, was at Purcell Farms. And I got to say, I've had some experiences at Purcell that were just magnificent. But Orvis Purcell Farms, I have to say, um, just provides a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gamut of opportunities and, and like shooting opportunities and just different things along that pal- that place. And I always find something new there. So this time, y'all, this driven, this driven shoot clays piece that they have at the shooting school, man, if I didn't have a blast shooting those things, of course I had to shoot my 410, of course, you know, shout out to AYA. And it was just, it was right, man. Um, learning how to shoot at 90 degree angle angles like that, you know, and, and learning when to shoot, you know, before you hit that 90 degree part, like uh, Trip Hodges there, our shooting instructor, just did a wonderful job, um, you know, just kind of coaching me along the way and making some really tough shots um, on their sport and clays course. But that driven shoot feature was just something that if you have not been anywhere like that, definitely check out Orvis uh, Purcell Farms. You know, and Vegas ran well there. He did a wonderful job in their fields. Um, I don't know. It was just the, the entire weekend is just one to take in and appreciate and remember, you know. So, you know, just this this thing about really pursuing a lifestyle or 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 a a livelihood in bird dogs. I mean, you go and get it, man, and you going to find it. That's kind of how I feel about this whole thing. I hope that you know the information that I'm I'm researching is not only going to be interesting to you guys, but I really do believe that something, some some methods, some practices are age old. So that's kind of where I'm at with that, man. I'm just I'm really excited about this particular project, the the Filson project that just happened a uh, couple of months ago. I mean it's it's been great. So, like I said, I'm gonna wrap it up here. Um, I'm doing this episode in some in some chunks and things like that, just because of moving and life changing so fast. So many good opportunities. So, I figured I'd just kind of come back and, and, and check in when you know something else significant goes on, you know, and, and and we talk about it or observe it on a podcast again at some point down the road. So, anyway, on to the next thing. Right. Ah, this is the first recording in the new studio, the new Gundog Notebook Studios. Let's let's call it like that. I'm excited. No, we uh Ashley and I have officially moved to our new new uh house and 
I, of course, have a new art studio slash recording studio here. Um, y'all will have to pardon any noise that y'all are getting as far as, like, the fan and stuff like that. Um, but, hang on. I had to switch the settings. But, yeah, so I am walking around the studio sitting chilling uh excited about this new transition we got more dogs of course um so i'm in the process of rebuilding my kennels i got ruger vegas and and a new dog named q um and she's actually a daughter out of Miller uh, Champion Miller Speed Dial. So I have been working her. She's four years old um, and she is here at the new house with me. So, yeah, I mean, we got some work cut out for us, but I'm just, you know, truly excited to be in this space, um, you know, and outside it was rainy today, but we had some bouts of sunlight and I was able to get it in and rock my new Biomatrix uh, straw hat that I've, I've been a huge fan of. Um and just a shout out to Biomatrix, um, the supplements that I use in addition to the wonderful, great Yukonuba Sporting Dog. That combination together for me has been just fantastic and stellar. Um, I am sad to say that I was not able to make the Endless Migration uh, film up in Alpharetta uh, here in Atlanta just because we had a babysitter uh, our babysitter had a, a little bit of things that she needed to do today, so she kind of had to bail on us a little early. But all that being said, I, I know the film was great. Jake Terry does a wonderful job. Yukonuba does a wonderful job. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, of course, does a fantastic job. Um, and Endless Migration is just such a wonderful addition to the uh, waterfowl community so i'm excited you know to, to to see that whenever it is that i do come around to see it i was supposed to go today like i said but yeah i mean we're here um you know it's just it's it's all a blessing in this place is is exactly what i'd been looking for um and trying to get accomplished for years now so yeah man you know the blessings just keep on coming around um the way that it's looking now, you know, one of these days I've got enough microphones to really do what I want to and the table space to do it. And now that we're kind of coming out of COVID and all of this vaccination stuff, I get my second vaccination on uh, Monday in a couple of days. You know, I, I, I really want to get this place to where I can actually have more in-person interviews um the way that this studio is set up it actually allows for me to do that so having guests kind of come over in person that's my long-term goal but we'll get there in the interim i uh you know i'll just keep on working these dogs and and, and trying to make the best out of what i got um i'm trying to put together a nice little guide string and i'm doing it with pedigrees that I am truly excited about um, doing it a little different. I've got, I wanted to get older dogs uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, I just, you know, if I need to be guided next season, I, it doesn't make sense to have young puppies um, on the ground it'll, it, because they need time to develop. So 
I've got older dogs and I've still got some puppies coming around. I'm still waiting on my setter from Paul Cook at Alder Fork English Setters. Um, and I'm talking to Tim Cavanaugh. Uh, His female uh, Bella just went into heat and he's got some nice things up his sleeve. And and, and long as everything works out, I'm going to see if I can't get me a puppy off of there, too. So I'll have two little ones on the ground and I think that'll be good. You know, we uh, we got a full house over here. So everything else, uh, you know, all said and done. You know, we should be making some really, really, really big strides with the Gundog Notebook and Minority Outdoor Alliance this uh, this year. You know, coming up, I've been Ashley and I've been chopping away at the nonprofit, you know, kind of quietly for the most part. But we've got some things coming up with Orvis um, in the very, very near future. So stay tuned for that. And uh, of course, I want to continue to push the Minority Outdoor Alliance scholarship. And if you need more details on that, I would love for anyone to send me an email, a DM or anything like that to go ahead and get this thing uh, on the road. Cheyenne Kennels, you know, I'll be breeding and next season and and Q, long as she keeps doing what she's going to do, I'll end up breeding her as well. So, you know, we've got some good things coming down the pipeline. Uh, Man, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? It's just so many different things that honestly keep me busy. I just want to make sure everything is up to snuff. But the last part about it is, of course, y'all can see that I am recording again with Alex Sparks of Snowbound Kennels. Why? Because we honestly got such rave reviews on the first podcast. You know, I had to do it again. Seems like a lot of people really vibe with his method. Um, Tim Cavanaugh and I spoke pretty ex- extensively about, you know, the things that uh, Alec is doing. So you you guys take a look at it. Um, you know, you know me. I like my long podcast. So you're going to get a whole lot of information. But what what I do also enjoy is Alec is very easy to talk to. So so much of what we do is just general conversation. You know, but they're just gems that he drops like constantly. It's like rapid fire dropping of gems. <laughs> so all that being said, guys, um, of course, don't be surprised if you see Alec pop up again. I still want to say a big thank you to um Charlie Jordan over at Missing Sucks. Guys, go check out missingsucks.com um, for just some really, really, really class content, some high class content, some some really nice stuff, um, poetic stuff coming out of Charlie Jordan. Um, and of course, you know, Charlie is the reason why I am so drawn to shooting 410s only you know i started my my journey with the 410 um single shot you read about it in outdoor life um a piece that i had there my granddaddy's gun and uh charlie of course is has gotten me sold on the whole side by side thing which leads me into my segue about aya guys get you an aya i mean it's is fine-tuned tailored and <laughs> you can't get a better fitting gun for the price points that they're offering them um you're getting heirloom quality 
and you're 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 not spending what you would spend on 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 a purdy or holland in holland um and that's one thing that really attracted me to the gun it's not you know an 870 but it's not a purdy but it's it's closer in line to that matter of fact if we want to go historically wesley richards you know is definitely what i would kind of correlate AYA two, you know, if they were like an, a, a a British best gun or something like that, um, it, it gives me Wesley Richards vibes with Spanish fine gun aesthetics and in the hold. So y'all just yeah, go take a look at AYA man. You can find more on the films um, in the Project Upland archive. AJ went over there to Ebar Spain um, to do some some documentary work with them a, a good bit ago. So check them out. All right. Well, guys, I'm going to go ahead and get to the podcast with Alex Sparks. I just wanted to go ahead and get an intro in here at the new uh, Gun Dog Notebook Studio space. And uh, we'll we'll go ahead and catch you all soon. Stay tuned. So you were you were saying that, like, your standard is kind of out of the box, but you pretty much like you're just not going to take anything as far as ability and natural ability. You're not going to just accept any old thing out of a dog. I want to get the best I can out of the dog without, without being unfair, like, like not taking anything out of the dog. Well, and a lot of people are trying to run the Indy 500 with a Camaro. Okay. And they don't have the dog to do it. And maybe their Indy 500 is just going hunting for the weekend. Right. And it's, it's not winning a national. But they, they, they don't really have the dog for it. But yet they try to make the dog, the, make the dog do it. I mean, mm-hmm. Kyla, there's so many different conversations on that one. It's crazy. So right. um, you just uh, you lead the way, man. And I will talk because I'm good at running my mouth. <laughs> All right. So let's let's go backwards um, into the conversation. And a good buddy of mine, um, you know, Tim Cavanaugh reached out and uh was talking about the 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 first episode so i wanted it and and that really just got me because i mean he was just you know really really speaking quite highly you know of of everything that you said on the first episode but a lot of what it was is taking a lot taking out a lot of unnecessary steps and and my biggest thing is not leaving negative fingerprints on a dog like negative imprints you know, yep, and no, you do yep. that very well. Well, I, 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 I try to, and sometimes I struggle to. Um, the hard part about training dogs, uh, field dogs, is we have to train them to sometimes do things they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And we also have to train them to do, to not do things they really want to do. Okay. For example, in the retriever world, the, the dog might be asked to um, get in a piece of water that it would just as soon run around. Okay. Um, so many people go, well, that's silly. My dog's smarter. He should know to run around. 
oh, does he know there's a pile of broken glass or a barbed wire fence that goes into the pond over there or uh, a pile of rocks or some other danger? If they go straight, you can always let them run around if it makes sense. But if they don't know how to go uh, straight, then a lot of times they're always going to run around. So in that case, we have to make a dog do something it really doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And in the case of maybe a bird dog, we have to stop it from doing something it really wants to do, like cats or chase the bird. All right. And the tricky part is to get the dog to do those things and not create problems, mm-hmm. which gets into one of my favorite subjects is when so frequently I see people create behaviors they don't want because of pressure. And sometimes despite your best intentions and the, the, the way you train and everything you put into it, something might crop up that's unexpected. A, a, a dog may display a behavior that you really don't want, but that's a product of what you are trying to get. What I see universally is when people have a, pro, uh, uh, a behavior they don't want that's a byproduct of pressure, they almost always try to fix it with more pressure, right. okay? And a classic might be mouth example, okay? The the dog, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe you're putting pressure on a dog uh, to get it staunch or steady to wing and shot or a retriever um, steady on the line or your, your flushing dog trying to get it to hop and you're using some pressure to do that. Now, all of a sudden, the dog gets a little chompy on his birds, maybe a little hard mouth. Everyone dives into the dog's mouth, okay, and starts trying to fix the mouth problems. And I got to use pressure. I got to use force fetch or more force fetch pressure to fix these mouth problems that aren't really mouth problems. They're just a manifestation of how the dog's dealing with pressure someplace else. Okay, so go down that rabbit hole because that that goes into, you know, force fetch, you know, with people and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Something you start to see in people putting a dog up on the table and, and strapping his neck collar to a pole and, you know, that whole 40-year-old doctrine thing. Like, I, I want to dig into that some more. That's one of the areas that I think is probably the most uh, uh, medieval draconian that, that people are, are just swear by. I mean, if you go on the internet and go to a, uh, some sort of training forum and say, hey, you know, I, I want my dog to deliver to hand, you're going to have half a dozen people jump in. And the first thing I'm going to tell you to do is go to Home Depot mm-hmm. because you got to build a table. You can't force fetch your dog without a table. So this is, this is my thought process, and I could be terribly mistaken, okay? Somewhere somebody along the line was, trying to get their dog through some sort of force fetch program and the dog's like jumping around and, and struggling and being very difficult. And they said, you know, this is kind of hard on me. And when I'm at the vet and my dog's up on that table, he's really quiet. So I'm going to put the dog on the table. It'd be easier for me to do. And I'll have more control over the dog because quite frankly, why on earth would you ever have a dog's mouth on the same level as your face? Right. <laughs> you know, when you're doing something like that. So right. they put the dog up on the table, but sure enough, the dog can still um, move around a great deal. So they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to hook his neck collar to this post or the wall or something like that. Well, it's a single point. Now the dogs can still move around quite a bit. So 
put a let's put a collar around the dog's flank and hook it into another post. So here's my analogy on that. I'm going to put you in a straight jacket. So when I'm kicking you in the kidneys, you don't punch me. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. The behavior that they're trying to control, they're actually inducing through the process of how they're introducing the concept of force fetch or force breaking to the dog. And I learned that process through retriever people, literally chapter and verse 30 years ago. The way I learned it, it was so regimented. You did ear pinch, and then after ear pinch, you overlaid uh, a tap of the stick in the dog's uh, rump, okay, and changed the compulsion to fetch from ear pinch to stick pressure. And then wait for it. You're going to love this. The doctor in 30 years ago with retriever people was then to have your assistant behind the dog and with, you know, not not full strength, but as you tap the dog with a stick, your assistant with a slingshot would bounce a marble off your dog's butt, okay? And the compulsion changed from the stick to the marble. And then they put an electric collar on the dog and use the electric collar simultaneously with the marble to eventually get fetch off the ground with collar pressure. And I, I learned that 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, I was going, man, I know this works, but this just is, doesn't make sense. Right. There's no continuity of concept for the dog. We're going from his, from his neck to his tail and back to his neck. And, you know, I understand you know, I understand it conceptually. I understand it implementing it. Um, but that's where I come from the world of force fetch. I then quickly segued out of that. Uh, the marble was kind of anachronism back in those days, but I still learned it. Mm-hmm. And most people were doing some form of ear pinch and perhaps stick fetch or something like that. Right. And then going to the collar. Uh, the first professional trainer I ever worked for was a gentleman named Jim Swan at Swan Kennels in Sanger, Texas. Mm-hmm. He invited me out there, I think, 28 years ago. Okay. And I will be thankful for the rest of my life that he was generous enough to have me come work for him. And he did a different way. Right. He did ear pinch. And then at the same time, he applied a little forward pressure with a prong collar. And so then it made it very simplistic to overlay a remote collar on top of the prong collar. And it was all kind of, you know, in the same area and it really made sense. But I looked at it years ago and I asked the the pros that first taught me the concept. I said, well, you told me I wasn't supposed to teach with pressure. I was supposed to teach, but clearly in force sets, when you're applying enough pressure to the dog, so there's some discomfort, so he opens his mouth, so you can put an object in the dog's mouth whether it's a nerve hitch around his toe or an ear pinch or scrunching his jowls or stepping on his foot or whatever, whatever people do. I said, aren't we teaching with pressure? And they said, yeah, but you have to. Okay. And I heard that 30 years ago and Mm -hmm. pros who were new to it 10 or 12, 15 years before that had asked the same question as me and been told the same thing. So we're looking at doctrine that's been going on for about about 40 years. And basically, people put dogs on tables, not everybody. I know some dogs hop on tables and wag their tails and they're happy as clams. But I've also talked to 
trainers that said, yeah, it, we, it took an extra week to get this dog used to being on the table and being comfortable. Mm-hmm. Most people just put them on tables. Um, the YouTube videos of dogs being force fetched with their tails between their leg and their ears back. It, it's just, you know, it's just for me very, very discouraging because the behaviors that the dog is exhibiting, we read the book and said, oh, pinch your ear, dog opens his mouth, put the bumper in. The dog read the book that said, he pinches my ear, he wants me to stop. He pulls my toe, I want him to stop. So I'm going to rear up. I'm going to lie down. I'm going to twist around. I'm going to try and bite the guy. Um, there's one dog trainer who I saw his, his information online. He said, you have to force fetch dogs wearing fireplace gloves because every single one will bite you that badly. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, th- I think maybe, maybe I've been bitten once or twice really unexpectedly by some strangely mentally sensitive dogs in 30 years. Right. I, I like I force fetch hundreds of dogs and I don't get bitten and this guy has to wear fireplace gloves. <laughs> what the heck? What the heck is he doing to those poor dogs? So I questioned that a long time ago and struggled to figure out how to do it differently. And this is a system I came up with. I put it out online years ago. I'll show anybody in person. I just want dogs to be go through that process in a more fair way. Right. The standard doctrine is you apply enough pressure someplace on your dog that he opens his mouth in discomfort and you put the object in there. Well, now I got him strapped in so he can't rear up, lie down, twist around, or try and bite me, and we work through that. And I know you can work through it because I did it with an awful lot of dogs. But the way I do it now, for starters, I do everything on the ground like everything else because the dog is more comfortable on the ground, all right? And... The analogy I use is when a dog's on a table, it's kind of like being in the dentist chair. Mm-hmm. My apologies to dentists everywhere. <laughs> but it's kind of like being in the dentist chair. And when, even if they're doing something non-invasive, just like a cleaning or something, and they get their hands out of your mouth, I mean, you sit up in the chair and you kind of move around and you don't realize how far you've scrunched down. So dogs are on the, they're on the table. They're always kind of in that dentist chair, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. When they're on the ground, I'll do a few repetitions. I'll stop. We'll heal or move 20, 30 feet. They're out of the chair. They can stretch. No stress. And then we do a few more repetitions. I hear people force-fetching their dogs for 40 minutes. Oh, yeah, I worked with my dog for 40 minutes last night. I force-fetch dogs for like maybe five minutes. You know how many repetitions you can get in in five minutes? Mm-hmm. It's crazy right. to think about 40 minutes. So here's what I do that I wish everybody would do. Whether it's on a table or not, when I do two weeks of praise and repetition hold, two five-day weeks where probably only 15 times per session, I'm going to gently open the dog's mouth. I just use a retrieving dummy. I'm going to ease a dummy in its mouth, and I'm going to try and lightly cup its mouth closed and encourage it to hold, okay? If the dog is struggling so much that I can't use a dummy, which some do, I will literally just use my hand. I'll slide my hand in their mouth. And again, it's like everything else. You start very short periods, one second, a second and a half, maybe two seconds, you know, I don't put my hand or a dummy in my mouth and try and get them to hold it for 30 seconds or 40 seconds, just in and then out, in and then out, 
in and then out. Okay, heel, come on, let's move around a little. Let's relax a little bit. Okay, let's do it again. In and out and in and out. I have people say that they're physically incapable of doing that. I'm six foot nine and I do that with boys and spaniels. Um, so if you really have a physical problem, just use a five gallon like sheetrock pail. Mm-hmm. Uh, turn it over and use it for a seat and sit on that seat next to your dog on the ground. Do your repetitions, uh, praise, and, uh, praise uh, repetitions of hold. Pick up the pail, move 20 feet, sit down, do it again. Let your dog relax. Mm-hmm. No big deal. You're just going to hold this a little bit. So after two weeks of that, I put the object in the dog's mouth and then I do, you could do this on a table if you were obsessed with tables. <laughs> um, uh, I, I do ear pinch because I find that the, the toe hits kind of unwieldy in a transitional period. Mm-hmm. So I do an ear pinch. And if, if your listeners hold their left hand palm up and they take their right thumb and press into the palm of your hand, you press the left palm so, so it dents in about a quarter of an inch, maybe three-eighths of an inch. It's just a little pressure. It doesn't hurt, but you can feel it, okay? So I put the object in the dog's mouth. I get its ear in position, and almost all of them drop it, even after a couple weeks of praise hold, okay? Um, and they drop it. I just start pressing on their ear. I don't pinch. I just press on it. I reach down and pick up the dummy. I have another one in my hip pocket in case that one had rolled out of my reach, okay? I then was faced with a problem. Well, now I'm holding the dog with my left hand. I got a dummy in my right hand. The dog's not opening his mouth from pressure. What do I do? And I figured out if I extended my index finger and my center finger while I was holding the dummy, I just pressed against the dog's right jawline because I do dogs on my left-hand side. Mm-hmm. If I just press a little light pressure on their their uh, right jawline, they open their mouth. I can seamlessly roll the dummy in, and as soon as the dummy's in their mouth, I stop the press, okay? I've never had a dog bite me using that technique, and I've never had a dog whose mouth I didn't couldn't open with just a little, a little pressure on the jawline there. Right. So... Now it's back in their mouth. I stop the press. I remove my hand. If they drop, I go through the same procedure. And I do that three or four reps in each place. Then I move 20 or 30 feet. I give my old back a little bit of a break. I give the dog a little bit of a break out of the dentist chair. We stop, and it's a little bit of this. You know, I'm just trying to get them to hold for a few seconds, not, not, not a half a minute. And I do that for a couple days, maybe 15 reps a day. Um, for a couple days. Then on day three, when they drop it, that press might, I might just press a little bit harder. Okay. And in my experience, when I use that technique, I find, man, maybe 25, 30% of the dogs will literally start having a pretty good hold just under that mild press that wouldn't hurt your grandmother if you pressed her ear that hard. Okay. They just get that association when they aren't in a panic, fear, pain mode, okay? They go, oh, I feel that little pressure. Oh, it stopped. I guess I'll hold on to this thing. So then you can start upping the pressure a little bit. And I find that, surprisingly, a a fair amount of dogs, as you represent the dummy, will actually start opening their mouth as you represent 
under a small escalation of of, of uh, uh, pressure, okay. and a smaller percentage will even start reaching for the dummy as I represent it. Okay, all on either the press or a slight escalation of the press. Right. Earlier to you know earlier today when we were texting that analogy, um, the latest one you sent about the steering wheel um, in your truck and, and turning yeah. it randomly yep. and stuff like that. Yep. Let's talk about that. Yep. Stuff just kind of comes to me really easily and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's the thought and I've encountered it for a number of years. People hear the methodology I go through training a pointy dog and they go, oh man, that guy's a control freak. I can just see him. He's one of those guys that hacks his dogs all over the place. And, you know, they're just mechanical and he never gives them a break. He's turning and woeing them. And I've seen that before. So, my analogy to that is I got a steering wheel in my truck, okay? And when I come up to a turn, I turn that steering wheel. But when I'm going down the straight, I'm not weaving back and forth down the straight just for the sake of turning. Um, and it's the same with the same with my dogs. I instill that foundation. I install brakes and steering. But, man, I only use it when I need it, okay? If I need a dog to turn or I need a dog to come or I need a dog to whoa, I ask it to whoa. Otherwise, I just shut the heck up right. because um, given them the proper exposure to the birds they will be hunting, they know how to do it a heck of a lot better than, than I ever will. Mm-hmm. I mean, they literally, you know, the dogs in the grouse woods that have a lot of experience and down in your neck of the woods, they know where to look for birds right. because 90%, 95%, 98% of the cover, it doesn't hold birds. They're only in specific places, right. and when the dogs learn those, they go to those places. Of course, if they have brakes and steering when they're younger, you can help guide them to those places. Right. So um, I'm working with someone now remotely that, you know, their dogs don't have a, a ton of horsepower. I shouldn't say that. The dogs seem like they have a, enough horsepower, but I think he's over-controlling them a little bit. And what, I was what, what, what is him. he doing specifically? Uh, he's working on a check cord, okay? And he's asking the dogs to turn just like windshield wiper. Turn, 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 turn. And it sounds like the dogs get kind of sick of that and kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. So I did a little video for him today and said I had a dog that's a uh, uh, younger dog, doesn't have a ton of horsepower yet. Um and I did a video of that dog and just said, look, look at the freedom I get this dog. It's on a check cord, but I'm not even asking it to turn. I'm just sort of letting it pull. And I'm kind of more following the dog around. And every now and then I'll ask it to turn and just sort of showed him that, like, what you really want to do is you, and it's hard. It's the artful part about training. You want to tailor everything to individual dogs. You know, I got one of those barn burner dogs that has a client that doesn't need a barn burner dog. That dog's going to get handled more. It's going to have to get handled more. Mm-hmm. And you have a dog. I think the harder dogs for people to train are the ones that what the dog has to offer at the moment is not what the person wants. They they want more. Interesting. I, okay. I had a case years ago, a guy got up. It was a retriever puppy, and it came from a kennel, and the guy that runs the kennel has a book. And it has a whole timeline. At this age, you do this. At this age, you do this. At this age, you do this. And he showed up with this little puppy that was like 16 weeks old. And it was just miserable. 
but he's like, well, I'm following the book. And of course, he's all enthusiastic. He's got his first retriever puppy, and I'm going to do right by it, and I'm going to follow this book to the letter. The puppy just wasn't up to his level of enthusiasm for training. It was just a dog that needed to mature a lot more or go with a much slower approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, I'm training a dog from uh, the same channel right now, and if he had that dog, he could have done that sort of advanced hammer on it when it's really young program because the dog is more that temperament. So people just need, uh, you know, as I said before, they need to pay more attention to their dog, uh, their dog. They need to be more observational. They need to do what's right for the dog, not what they want to do. You know, um, that's hard. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's really going back to tailoring your approach and really observing, you know, what's going on. I, I think, you know, honestly, I, I, I think people get overzealous when you think you got something good, right? Like, and, and very likely you do have something good, but what ends up happening is sometimes you have to reveal those dogs genetics. Sometimes they're not just those barn burners that you, that you, you know, always kind of, you know, hear about, especially for pointers, right? Like I got my learning lesson real easy, uh, real, real recently, you know, with a dog that's four years old. I actually just got her. She's four years old. Her name is Q and she comes out of Miller speed dial. And, uh, you know, you would expect her to be just a road runner, right? And expect her to be the most bird pointless thing in the world. Well, I put a pigeon in front of her and the dog, Alec, when I tell you the dog could care less. I mean, literally just was like, I mean, the most apathetic thing in the world. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. You know, then ended up having to, uh, you know, I ended up getting a quail or whatever and putting that in front of it, ripping the flight feathers out, you know, kind of making it to the where, where the, the bird was literally right in front of a dog had no interest in it, Alec. None. Yeah, and that freaks people out. Yeah, and that it almost leads, freaked me out. Almost. <laughs> and that, and then they, well, you know, another case. I had a guy a number of years ago called me up and asked, you know, if I knew of anybody that had any short hairs for sale. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, maybe. What are you sort of looking at? What What are you looking? At? He goes, well, I got this dog. It's it's like six or eight months old, something like that, and uh, it, it's no good. I'm right. like, <laughs> why isn't it any good? Well, you know, it just it doesn't point, you know. Right, and, and you think it doesn't, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. The expectation I bought a pointing dog is supposed to point because you look on the internet and there's these all these little eight and twelve week old puppies locked up. So, mm-hmm. well, mine the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, the 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 guy I have a. I try and help people out. I have quite a sliding scale when it comes to my price. And I said, yeah, bring the dog here. Let me fool around with it for a couple of weeks before you get rid of it and let you see what it, what you have there. And I took the dog along like I described, you know, in our last podcast. I put it on a check cord. I brought it into a bird perpendicular to the scent cone and stuff. And that little dog, I mean, within a couple of days, he was like slamming into play. He just mm-hmm. hadn't had the right introduction for him. Mm-hmm. And the guy was following that, well, you run them on birds and they figure it out for themselves plan. Right. And I told him, I said, look, there's, there's nothing wrong with a dog. It's totally, totally fine. It's just sort of the, the process program you were 
taking it through in your expectations. And people don't want to hear that, mm -hmm. you know? Well, that I was, mean, and, and that happened to me. My buddy Tim, the one that I said, you know, really enjoyed the last podcast that you did. He was the one told me, he's like, nah, Darrell, give it a second. Just, just hang out with that dog for a second. Just hang out with him. And I was like, all right, all right, all right. And come to find out that dog points just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that, a pointer that points, you know? Right. <sighs> you know, like, and it just took a second. And all I did was, honestly, it was, a, it was a quail that ran across. You know, it was out of the bird box, right? And I, and I just so happened to have that dog in my hand. And uh, I was like, huh, this seems like an opportunity. Thinking outside the box, you know, just let's, let, let's see if nature is going to do what nature should do, right? So she saw, I saw, she saw the bird run. I, I just dropped the check cord. <laughs> and yep. she bolted after that bird. I was like, "Good, mm -hmm. we we're we're good." Like she's got that in her, so why wouldn't she point? Okay, now now that I got the interest, all I did was I what I did also was uh, I killed a couple of quail and I honestly let her eat them. I just literally mm -hmm. let her eat them, and then yeah. and then put another bird on a pigeon pole, put it in front of her. She got to pointing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it a thousand times. I don't even want to think how many dogs have been cast off as no good because they didn't come out of the come out of the whelping box and do it all naturally. And you know, people just get get rid of them. And as I said in the previous podcast, I don't even care points when it comes in here because you know, twenty six years. I think I've had. I mentioned before two or three dogs that just didn't point no matter what we did, and that's pretty high percentage of dogs that. They eventually figure it out if you give them the right the right exposure. But then again, my idea of the right exposure is different than just running them on birds until they kind of figure it out themselves. Right. I, I think you can. I think you can help that along, and I think you can help a lot more dogs be successful. Right. I think the, so. Yeah. It's it's a big human psychology thing because I mean, what do we what do we have? We have our memories of the past and our expectation of the future, okay? So this is what I know has happened or I read has happened or someone has told me has happened. And now I have an expectation of how something's going to go in the future. That's mm -hmm. our life right there. And frequently people's expectations don't really mesh with the reality. <laughs> and, you know, that, that leads to problems. And when you don't know the answer, people get frustrated, and when people get frustrated, things go things go poorly. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that part of patience that you learn being a dog. You know, <laughs> being in dogs too. It, you know, and it, it comes from it comes from sample size. You know, if you you've trained five dogs and they've kept five dogs, ten dogs, fifteen dogs, twenty dogs and they've all come out and done pretty well, that still doesn't really prepare you for that dog that comes out and doesn't do well. Right. Okay. So you train, uh, you know, I had a, a great friend here today. He has, uh, he's placed in, he's an amateur, has a couple dogs. He's placed in the last 13 field trials he's running. Okay. Right. Um, uh, I'm not going to say what breed of dogs in, in uh, uh, tip of the hat to his privacy, but um, he is, as an amateur, is placed in the last 13 trials he's run. 
And he said today that I think I'm just getting to the point where I really can start learning how to work with dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, look, the best thing you could possibly do, in my opinion, would be to start training a wide variety of dogs because he's very breed centric. These are the dogs I own. These are the trials I enter. This is what I do. And I had no more said you should train some different dogs than he just snapped out. No, never. Okay. And that's honestly how most people are. You know, I'm kind of unusual that I specialize in not specializing. Most people are pointer people or they're setter people or they're springer people or they're, they're lab people or they're Chesapeake people or they're golden people. That's, and, then they run those certain disciplines. And that's totally fine. I was a retriever person once, but I do think there's a benefit in getting a bigger skill set if you work with a wider variety of dogs. And my personal experiences working with that wider variety of dogs is, is helped me cross discipline. Okay. So do you, do you think, okay, so going on to that, is there such thing as a guy that's proficient in all the varieties of hunting dogs? Like, you know, like what, what do you think that does for, for your learning to, you know, the guys that are hound guys, then the guy, and then they got bird dogs and then they got bite dogs. Like, I mean, that's, is, is there a guy like that out there? Um, you know, I fool around with protection dogs. I don't do it professionally, but I fool around with protection dogs and probably have some level of understanding and skill there. I work with a wide variety of all breed dog and obedience and a lot of behavioral issues that come along with that. Um, I train flushing dogs. I train pointing dogs. I train the versatile dogs. I train retrievers. I've trained retrievers to field trial open level. I've trained bird dogs, uh, started bird dogs that have gone to clients that have done well in a wide variety of hunting situations and horseback trials and, and breed specific cover dog trials. Um, I've got a kind of unusually wide cross section of dogs. I, did you, did you ever want to get into hounds? Did you ever like think about that? No, for some reason that's nothing that's ever, that's ever fired me up, you know, okay. and, uh, there's probably a real lack of understanding. Uh, and he, which, which segues into what I was just going to say. I know a lot of, uh, I've met a lot of bird dog pros that go, oh, oh, those retrievers, there's nothing to that. Those dogs, they run out and retrieve. That, you know, there's nothing to that. They don't train them. Maybe they have one or two in their kennel, but they've never really trained a retriever to what I would consider a high level. And right. I find all these retriever people that go, retriever pros that go, oh, what's the big deal with bird dogs? You just cut them loose and they point birds. They do that all the spells. Like, what's the big deal with a protection dog? It's just a vicious dog that bites people. And probably I have a simplistic view of the uh, the hound world. What's the big deal? You cut them loose, and the, you know they chase stuff. It's, it's, it, and it is more genetic. There's like I've, n- I've never never seen or heard of a beagle or a hound. It's, we have a fair amount in Vermont with uh, people who run coyotes, people who run bears, and uh, and rabbits. You, you know, there's a lot of training there. A lot of it's really genetic and stuff, and uh, a lot of non-contextual collar enforcement to try and get them off uh uh off game they don't want them to chase and come when they're called and stuff but contrast that with like a you know all-age field trial retriever who's Mm -hmm. doing incredibly complex tasks at long distance under incredible control okay um but like i said before when i got into bird dogs they need 
a lot more finesse. They're much less forgiving, in my opinion, than a retriever. Mm-hmm. And working with bird dogs helped my retriever game, uh, my retriever training. And working with different all-breed dogs, it just gives you more insight into dogs. You're like, whoa, look at that. That worked for that dog. I wonder if I did that with that with that bird dog, if it would work. You know, just kind of yeah. some different ideas that you can try. And you know, when you're when you're me and you have a lot of dogs, you have the luxury of doing that. Most people have their own personal dog, and I, I they want their dogs trained. Right. They don't really so, want to be dog trainers. They want their dogs trained. Do Do you think though? Do you think dog trainers like? W- w- I'm curious. To think. Do you think dog trainers try to understand their own personal dog's threshold for training, you know, more so than maybe their client dogs? You think that's like a thing? It it, it brings up, you know, I think you have both. Um, I think you have some trainers who are probably more demanding of their own personal dogs because they really want uh, their dogs to be the star of their string and really shine as demonstrative of what I can train dogs to do. And then, then you have someone like me who, you know, unfortunately I got a really nice pointer, spends a lot of time sitting around the house looking out the window and watching me train other dogs. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have much time to work with them as I like. But it, it, that brings up a whole thought that um, I have on training progression. And in my experience, most people when they train, they train sort of for maximum advancement of a particular skill they're working on in every session. So if I'm, let's say, working on woe with my dog on the ground, okay, on the ground, he, he knows to woe, and I got him to woe for 20 seconds the other day. Today I'm going to go for 30 or 40, and tomorrow I'm going to go for 50 or 60. And they kind of go for maximum advancement. And in any of the things you're training your dog to do when you go for maximum advancement in every training session you inevitably end up in failure your dog fails to comply in your quest for maximum uh, advancement so then you have to do some remedial work maybe there's more pressure on the dog maybe a tone of your voice changes you're a little unhappy because man things are going great i only had 10 more minutes and and now he broke and and now um, I asked him to woe at 20 yards. He won't even woe at 20 yards after he failed at 30 and things kind of snowball. Okay. Somehow, oh, I don't know how, uh, it comes from teaching people because I uh, was teaching people long before I taught dogs. If someone goes out and takes a shotgun, sets up a, a challenging presentation and they start shooting that challenging presentation, they're, they're, they're going to miss. Then they're going to get in the groove eventually, and we're going to start smashing that thing. But you work on that long enough, you're going to get mentally or physically tired, and your performance is going to fall off, and you're going to ingrain bad habits. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if it's shooting a shotgun, swinging a golf club or a tennis racket or you know, throwing a fly line or something like that. You do it too long, your performance falls off. So when people are going for maximum advancement in every training session, the dogs basically kind of, training every day based off failure because it fails every day because Mm -hmm. you're trying to advance it so far. So what I try to do, I try to go on my advancement days. I try to get as much advancement as I can 
without failure. So if I'm asking my dog to whoa, and yesterday I got him to stand there for 20 seconds, today I'm going to start at 10. Then I'm going to work back up to 20. And then I'm going to be reading that dog like a hawk in maybe 25, 30 seconds. And I notice his, his, uh, his tail set changes or maybe his, his eyes flick off to the side or something like that. Some little sign, I'm going to cut him loose and call it a day rather than have him fail and then try and fix it. And on top of not going for maximum advancement every day, okay, I have advancement days, and then I have days when I go for no advancement, and then I have days when I'm way, way, way off their high point. So what what, what happens on the days when you get advancement, but you're going for no advancement? Okay, so I'm just going to throw out some random days. So a dog comes out on Monday. I'm going to kind of review and try to push back towards where we were on his last day of training. If I get back to where I was on his previous day of training, if he's had a day or two off, I'm happy. Okay. If I just haven't lost ground, um, if I can advance him a little bit from there, um, that's great. But I just like to get back to where the dog was solid on Monday and not really push for anything harder. Now, Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm probably going to try and get some advancement out of that dog without failure. And I've had people say, Oh, Alec, dogs can't learn unless they fail. Uh, yeah. Um, that's baloney. That's false. <laughs> you know. You know what? Um, I, the way I see it, if you if if you get if my dog does what I need him to do three times, and it's a new concept, I start quitting. <laughs> yeah, well, like, I, I'm I'm yeah, done. <laughs> right, and it just fosters such a great attitude in your dog. Yep. So let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm gonna um, try and go from twenty seconds to whatever I think I can get without failing. And, it, you know, when you go for maximum advancement without failure, I guarantee you're going to get failure sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But you just try to, you know, uh, limit that as much as possible. Then Thursday, I'm going to back way, way off and only ask him to woe for 10 seconds and just let him really, really enjoy the success of doing something really well. And very infrequently do people let dogs enjoy success. It's always this mad race for more, more, more every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, stress is cumulative. Um, so maybe that, that Thursday, I only ask a dog to woe for 10 seconds. All right. And it's child's play. They have a great day. They don't have to think at all. They don't have to work at all. Then the next day, I might go back to an advancement day. And then the day after that, flip the difference. Get them to get them to woe for 10, ten seconds less than our than our high point, rather than that that a uh, couple days previous where they were only maybe woeing for twenty five percent of their advancement. So it's a uh, and of course it all has to be done individually to the dog, you know. Uh, the, the, the more mentally sensitive dogs and the dogs that don't have as much drive, they're going to have more days working successfully without advancement. You know, they're a little slower to train. The, 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 the dogs that can really take uh, uh, and really thrive on a lot of training, you know, you, you get more advancement and it, go, it goes quicker. But it's the whole thing of, Really paying attention to your dog, not the clock, not the calendar, not the book, not the DVD, not what the heck Alex Sparks said on a podcast. I got to see what's best 
what's the best environment for my dog to thrive in? Not just this beating the drum of progression constantly. Right. I mean, is it, is you think that like there's a time where you just need to stop training your dog? Like for, and, I, and, I, and I'm, and I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you in my, my eyes. Um, my, my Vegas, my pointer, my, my male, I call him my lead dog. I'm not training him over the summer. I'm just not. And it's because he's broke. I don't need anything else out of him. The dog then gave me a hell of a season and very, 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 very seldom made a lot of mistakes or mistakes at all. Don't you think you a know, dog like that might need a break? Like, like everything else, um, uh, whether you're you're working out, you know, let's say you're working on your bench press, you can't just add ten pounds to it every single week and think you're, you know, in in ten weeks, you know, you're going to be lifting, you know, that much more weight. Mm-hmm. All right, um, you really want to cycle things where you have. Uh, uh, an advancement period and then a rest period and then advancement period. And man, I'm sure there's not a pro out there that runs field trials that hasn't gotten their dog ready to, for a trial before the trial. Okay. Right. The dog is peaked. It's, it's, it's doing its best physically. It's doing its best work. And man, I wish that trial was this weekend because I kind of misjudged this and the trial's three weeks away, some big, you know, a big championship or a big stake. And three weeks later, the dog, the dog passed his peak a little bit, um, maybe passed his peak a lot because we have this expectation. There's this linear curve. The dog's just going to get better and better and better. And it's like everything else is dependent. I've had dogs that really need ongoing maintenance. If you gave them time off, they really, really regret. They needed some sort of ongoing training all the time. And one of the most amazing dogs I ever trained in my career was a, a big Vizela that's owned by a great friend. The, the dog trained so easily. And the guy was uh, an incredible guy. Uh, I think he had two or three tours in Afghanistan with the Marines, one in Africa and was transitioning to civilian life uh, and still um, active duty, and then started going to college, NYU. So this incredible dog lived in this tiny studio apartment in New York City for months, okay? And a dog walker literally took the dog out on the sidewalk while this guy was in school. Dog hadn't done anything in four or five months. He shows up at my place, and the dog was just absolutely stunning, spot on, as good as it ever been. And yeah. it, I've never seen a dog that with no maintenance was as good as that dog Benelli was. And wow. thankfully, uh, his owner is still around, and Benelli's still around. And uh, you know, they're all different, and you got to pay more attention to your dog than the book or the DVD or Alex Sparks or what somebody says online or what someone tells you to do. It's your dog, your dog, pay attention to them, learn them and figure out what's best for them. Don't be, don't be out there with a cookie cutter. You're just another cookie cutter trainer. Yeah. I, you know what, man, I wish I had a thought to text you when I was getting that new dog, the one I was telling you about, <laughs> I, I'd have been curious to know what you would have thought to, to, to do when I'd have told you that dog one point. 
I feel yeah, like I know well, the answer, <laughs> but I just would have been curious in the moment. Like, I don't know why I didn't te- text you about that. Yeah. Well, you know, so many, so many young dogs are so visually oriented, mm-hmm. you know, they'll point songbirds, uh, they'll point butterflies and they'll run through scent cones. They'll run through the scent cone of a skunk without even noticing it. Right. And uh, it, a lot of time, you know, just the, you know, the old doctrine is you just run them in, they figure it out themselves. You know, I think there's a way to expedite that process, help them help, help that point come out. Um, uh, in a way that's constructive for them, not uh, approach, learning to approach birds too closely. Right. Well, and and see, that's something that was uh, that's interesting. And my buddy, I, I, and I'm just I'm talking about the same dog, right? My buddy, he, uh, I called him and I was like, "Dang, dude!" I was like, you know, just an update. You know, the dog ain't pointing nothing or whatever. He's like, "Well, you know, if you don't, you know, if you're not satisfied, we'll just bring her on back." And I was like, "Oh, well, you know, give me a couple of days to just." Let me let me see. Like, let me see what's up with her. And he asked me, he was like, you know, do you have the dog on a check cord? And I was like, yeah, I do. Because I believe him. <laughs> I don't believe in running a dog off a check cord. I, I'm sorry. I just don't. Um, You know, for, for a whole lot of reasons, but mostly just uh, to control the, the scenarios, you know, when I need to. And he was like, well, maybe take a, take the dog off of the check cord. Maybe she just needs to run and figure it out herself. Like, just let her run. And and I was like, uh, I love my buddy to death, but I can't I can't get down with that, man. I just can't. I just fundamentally can't. Like, keep a dog on a check cord and let's expedite the process other than just roll the dice and basically hope that the dog smashes into birds. Yeah, but then again, here I am the big advocate for helping the dog uh, encounter birds in the most advantageous way. But if I, I, there's a lot to be said for cutting them loose and letting them out there. You know, we think, oh, big deal, they're on the check cord. They're totally fine with it. Well, how do we know they're fine with it? Is it bothering the dog in some way? Is it a little apprehensive that you're not reading? Uh, does it, is it thinking more about, the tension on the check cord and any commands or movement, then, you know, it's paying attention to his ears rather than his nose and stuff. Um, I, like I'm, I'm a big fan of running young dogs on wild birds. It's only oh, when absolutely. I'm going with, with pen raised birds. And I would always I, do that. But when I have a pen raised bird, I'm not, mm-hmm. I just, I don't know what that bird is going to do. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll spend some money on some dogs. Um, like, I'm not a big user of quail up north here because mm-hmm. we got a lot of uh, uh, heavy grass. And even in four inches of gra- grass, those quail will, you know, they'll burrow in and you, you can't even find them a big, mm-hmm. when the dog's on point unless you step on them. And, um, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to hunt wild quail a little bit and when most people tell me their pen raised birds fly like wild quail oh god like, no they n- is not I'm the like, same i don't know if you've ever seen a wild quail oh, then because god. they fly more than 150 yards right so the I, last thing i want is to like to to put a poor flying bird out and have the dog chase it 150 yards and catch it on the ground okay so i'll i'll put a pheasant i'll put a pheasant out that i know is going to fly so far away the dog's not going to get it and you know it's a fly off it's a little more money and stuff like that but you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs so 
sometimes those dogs need need they need that. There's something I think they kicked in genetically with prey drive and the uh, the, the genetics of pointing when they encounter birds in I'm just going to say a more sort of natural way without just unfettered by people. So you know, for the tenth time tonight, I'm going to say, well, it depends. You know, maybe sometimes you need to. You, you you need to um, you know let them go. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just one of those one of those hard things that it's all so individual. So it goes back to sample size. The more you fool with, the more experience you're going to have in in what works. If you're someone that can kind of try to optimize each dog's experience rather than saying this is my program, this is what you're going to do. If it doesn't work, then it's your fault. Right. Right. Well, and I and and I'm here for it. Like, trust me, I'm one thousand percent on board with turning a dog loose and letting them. Let them don't don't get me wrong, but when it's it, it's a situation like this one that I'm in, that I'm like, okay, you have you're built with the right parts, but you've never had the. You basically have been sitting around in a kennel for your whole life, and maybe been run a couple of times. Maybe you point. Maybe you don't. There's nothing formalized, so you don't have to, you don't in your mind feel like you have to do anything when you encounter birds. What I want to do is basically turn the key over and start the engine. And, yeah. then, and, and then if we want to turn her loose, when she knows that when I'm around a bird, we, we, we're supposed to be doing something instead of just not caring. You see what I'm saying? Because especially, you know, I like a running dog. Well, what if, you know, I want to know that when that dog is running, she's running and hunting and not just running. You yeah. See, you well, see what I'm saying? There's a big difference, and some people don't know the difference between running and hunting and stuff. But, I, you know, um, I, I, never, I never close any door, okay? I mm-hmm. always have leave all my options open. Um, I just think that that's a, a, a good approach to things. Like, mm-hmm. what are my options? What's in my toolbox? I don't usually like to use that particular tool. There's a lot of downside. We're using that other tool. These current tools aren't using. I'm going to run it up the flagpole. And again, another thing that helps the, the more dogs you fool with, you know exactly how whole, how deep a hole you can dig and still get out. Right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> you know? You're right. You're like, right. I, I, I'll go out on a ledge sometime because I'm pretty good at scrambling back up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say you never know where the edge is until you step over it. The trick is being able to scramble back up before it's too late. Well, you and know? That, that goes back to threshold, which is what I wanted to get into. Like learning yep. what it. Uh, sometimes, you know, is it true that, that you know sometimes that. <laughs> you accidentally learn a dog's threshold. I burned my, I'm a, I'm gonna just put it straight to you. Uh, I thought I lost my female, uh, last weekend because, you know, out hunting her, trying to get her, you know, running and, and stuff like that. Not, not the one I was talking about. This is a different dog. Um, her name is Ann, and didn't realize how high I had my e-collar turned up. I just, <laughs> <Whoops>. right. <laughs> I did. I just. I just. And and because I'm so. I'm, I feel like I'm so second nature with that. With that Pro 550. You know, sponsor shout out. <laughs> but um, I feel really good about using it, and I just wasn't thinking. And so, of course, I burnt the dog up. What did mm-hmm. she do? Yep, and took off. 
Never saw her again yep. for about a day. <laughs> wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Guy, guy calls me and says, hey, man, he, he calls me Sunday at about 6, 7 o'clock p.m. He's like, hey, man, I think I got your dog. She was about two or three miles away from where we were training that day. And that was me accidentally learning that dog's threshold. And I didn't mean to, you know, I just wasn't being thorough. Well, so my question would be when she got bumped on too high a level, was it on a command? No, 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 no. She was, what I was trying to do, it was nothing that I felt terrible about as far as like it jeopardizing anything. She was running back to me and I was sometimes with the collar, I'll nick my dogs when I, when they're coming back, slapping me in my face. I don't want you to come back to me unless I call you. And so she has a tendency to run back to me. Let me interrupt. How, how do you teach that? How do they learn that? What do you, what is the way you're coming towards me? I'm going to give you a bump of the collar and I hope you figure out that means that I want you to go away from me. The way that I did it. With my other yeah. dog, I turn a, I usually have the thing turned way down, even on a vibrate maybe. And when they're running back to me, you can either bump, 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 or just kind of hit the vibrate, and they'll kind of slow down. And when they do, I say get out, and they'll turn. They should turn right back around and go back out. All I want you to do is either stop or get the memo that I just need you to not be doing, not be coming back towards me. So you're kind of, the way I would analyze that is you're leaving it up to the dog to figure out what what they're supposed to do in regards to that sensation, okay? So it's no surprise to me that a dog gets, gets a, a, a high bump on the collar and they're like, I'm I'm going to get out of here. Something right. bad happened. And that, and, but I'm that just, was my I'm mistake for, not, for having it too high. I didn't realize how high I had it. Right, but that that goes back to the discussion in the previous con, uh, podcast about contextual versus non-contextual collar use. Mm -hmm. Contextual being collar overlaid with some sort of actual physical control over the dog, check cord, leash, whatever, that you can control the dog's movements while you put an association with the collar of what's expected when they hear that command and feel that sensation. When you're just pressing buttons, hoping the dog kind of slows down or figures it, figures it out, some dogs do and some dogs don't, and you run the risk of what you experience there that, you know, I had a client once that was walking down the field and the transmitter was in their hip pocket. And mm -hmm. I said to them, I said, remember when we're training dogs, the transmitter's always in your hand. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as they got their transmitter out, they fumbled it. And as they fumbled it, they grabbed um, uh, a high, what well, was a continuous, if it had been used Ooh, in moment. Riding the lightning. They grabbed the continuous button and mm -hmm. dog vocalized. And what was the temperament of this dog? It healed for the next three days. It's wow. like, I'm not leaving your side because when I was out there, <laughs> something terrible happened. Right. So I'm just going to heal. It was, a, you know, it's a pretty low desire, lower desire showbread dog and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of dogs could take that and turn around and say, oh, to heck with it. I'm going to keep going. But that dog couldn't. Yeah. So no, mine that's why ran. <laughs> she that's was why gone. I, 
for de-snaking, de-roading, de-deering, you know, some things like that, those non-contextual um, collar um, enforcement mm-hmm. or collar activations, I should say. There are successful ways to do that. If I'm trying to get a dog to follow a command and an intended command, I'm not going to just bump it non-contextually and hope that it figures it out because some do and some don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would so, you what would you have done in that situation? All right. So in, 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 I'm curious to know what your process would have been. I don't want the dog to come back out, come back into me unless I call. I want you out there hunting, and I want you to push the ranges of the of the of the field. Right. Does it go forward on a whistle? Yeah. Okay. So um, if it's coming back, you can't give it a whistle, and the dog would know to turn around and go back out. It would, but I want it. I want it more abrupt. Like when I, if you're coming back into me, when I blow my whistle, I want you to stop abruptly and go back out. I don't want you to slow down. No, I want you to stop abruptly and be like, "Oh shoot, this ain't what I'm supposed to be doing," and beeline it back out. So think about think about ways that you could you could train that behavior. So going out was a good thing beyond just going back out to do more running yeah what if what if in training okay <laughs> you could set this up if you to try i've never done this this is just how my mind works so i'm, I'm setting it i have this set up so i think in this area my dog's going to check uh it might want to come back to me and if it does i'm going to whistle it uh to send it on and as soon as that dog turns around um, and is looking downfield, um, I'm going to pop a pheasant out of a release 100, 200 yards in front of it. So the dog's actually rewarded for going back out or just rewarded for getting into birds or rewarded somehow, okay? Rather than so much of the training is we try to figure out how to make them do it, okay? Give mm-hmm. them the got-tos where I want to try and figure out how to give them the want-tos. How do I want my dog to do what I want it to do? You know, you don't keep your dogs in the house, or do you have any house No, dogs? I don't. Uh-uh. My lab was the last house dog I had, and he's, he's outside now. All right. So it, it's typical you have house dogs. You know, all you got to do is go, who wants to go out? Right. And they go out, and man, they're really Oh, and they beeline it. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> You know, you can't train your dog to sit or come when it's called, but you say you want to go out, and man, they they know that so well. Uh, multiple doors in your house, they go to the door, they always go to go out. They, they just know that. So part of my thought process of when I'm training is, how do I get the dogs to do the stuff I want to do with the enthusiasm that they do something like that, as opposed to how do I make them do something, okay? Mm-hmm. Um Again, it's always going to be a combination of the got tos and want tos. I mean, you got to do this, but I want uh, uh, I want the dog to want to do it too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, looking at that, I just think that non-contextual collar to get you to slow down so I can turn around you and send you out. I'm sure it worked. Like a lot of well, things, yeah, it worked. worked on my first one. So yeah, it worked on the it first one. On the, like, you, you know, I'm not saying it's going to work on the second one, but, but it worked on the first one. <laughs> so just think, just think if you're a pro and you tried that on the second one, and instead of your buddy calling saying I got your dog, 
your buddy calls and said, oh, uh, we found your dog dead on the road. Yeah. And now you got to pick up the phone and call a client and say, I'm, I'm sorry, that little that little dog you put with me. And I tried something that didn't work with her. Right. Okay. That's not a phone. I mean, I know different things in different parts of the country and people feel differently about dogs, but that's not a phone call I ever, ever want to make. Oh, no, yeah. I don't. I could look and just an aside. I commend any trainer yourself, my buddy Plody, Tim, you know, any anybody that trains dogs for the public. I'm sure you guys have probably had to have made that call once or twice. I don't want to do it. I'm not built for it. <laughs> I'm just fundamentally not. Uh-uh. I, 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 I had an old, old, old uh, dog here of a client once that he had gone away for the weekend and he asked me if I'd watch his dog. The dog was like 14 or 15 years old. And I was out the kennel first thing in the morning, and I went out an hour later. It was the weekend, and the dog was lying peacefully in his doghouse. That's the only, the only one that's ever been lost on my watch is the dog that, that passed away of natural causes. Yeah. Um, I've had some dogs out of hand before, out of pocket, and uh, man, I'm at the same time terrified and angry, um, mm-hmm. and. I, you know, one day I spent nine hours looking for a dog, nine hours riding the roads, walking the woods, didn't train anybody else. And, you know, until I got that dog back and it's, it, yeah, it's horrifically, I mean, I took 10 years off my life over that dog. Oh, it's but, now the, my, your stomach drops. Like, yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Some people don't, Oh, it's just a dog. He ran off. Give me mm-hmm. another one. I'm like, wow. I don't yeah, understand no. that. But, I, 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 yeah. All my dogs are a team, you know. It like we all a team, and and again, these are my own personal dogs. I don't, I, I absolutely do not want to train for the public. So I guess I have a different viewpoint on it. Now I have dogs that I have a favorite, like sure, like it's whatever. But every dog, everybody is gonna get the same amount of care or regard. You see, what I'm saying like. Uh-huh. You're not gonna just run out like because I. It's not even the monetary aspect of it. It's the time. My time is my money, and my care is my money. That's my currency. You know, I I fully believe that some dogs understand and look at certain trainers or certain handlers, and they're like, "You're a jackass. I don't want to work with you." And then that same dog goes to another handler and be like, oh, you're actually kind of cool. All right, cool. You want to do this hunting thing? Let's do it. Yeah, there, there's something interesting about that. I've seen that before. And not even with dogs coming to me or leaving me. But I've seen dogs that they have so much baggage with the handler. Okay, mm-hmm. there, There's so much that's gone on in their relationship and training that the dogs have a difficult time doing what they've been trained to do. Mm-hmm. And they go to somebody else and they don't have that sort of baggage with their original trainer and they can just do what they were trained to do and they do it very well for somebody else. So that person looks like a hero and the other person looks like a zero, but the dog probably would have done it with anybody else. And I, I've seen that a few times um, over my career where people get great accolades for really doing nothing other than being a different person, which is what the dog needed. Mm-hmm. Literally so, like that. That's, that's what it is. I, and, and I'm, I said that off of personal experience also, like 
I feel like my female just needed a different handler. Yeah. It just comes yeah. down to it. Oh. Um, different, different, different dogs do well with different people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It, it goes back to that training environment the dog's in. It, uh, I think dogs do better if it's a their whole experience in training from the kennel to their interaction with other dogs, which I think is really important. Um, uh, training for success rather than failure. Um, uh, just a kind of a lighthearted, fun-loving attitude. The dogs pick up on that. Um, mm-hmm. Social reference off uh, each other and people. I, I think that the dogs just uh, prosper more in that environment or a wider selection of dogs are going to prosper in that environment versus a more um, authoritarian type training system and lifestyle. All right, guys, just as we have a little bit of a break, I just want to remind you guys to check out on X hunt. We also got a little film project coming up with Onyx, so stay tuned for that. When you are at checkout, use my promo code GDN20. Get yourself 20% off of the Onyx subscription before the hunting season starts back up. And I'm sure most of y'all can use it for scouting while we are not in season. So check them out today. And also, I want to give a shout out and encourage you guys to go and get you a bag of Yukonuba Premium Performance 30. 20 uh, sporting dog dog food. All right, you can check it out at Chewy.com, PetSmart, Petco, wherever you can find Yukonuba sporting dog. Um, and of course, you guys know we are avid, avid, avid users of the brand. We've been using it for a long time and absolutely advocate for them. The Yukonuba family is. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to say that, and that is actually an understatement. But the Yukonuba family, they've got a number of representatives. So if I'm not necessarily proofing the pudding enough for you, you can check out good folks like Bob Owens from Lone Duck and the folks at Project Upland, Jennifer Wopinski, everybody, Jake, Terry, everybody. So check them out. Go check out Yukonuba Premium Performance today. So look, let me let me uh, let me ask you, kind of turn it over to a different kind of set of things. First and foremost, before I forget, what what you looking for a field trial uh, a, a field trial dog, man? <laughs> I have a I have a friend who's very very experienced with uh, with uh, Belgian Malinois. Okay. Uh, a lot, a lot of experience with those dogs in protection, detection, uh, man tracking, search and rescue. And she has it in her mind that she likes to try and do something different with the dog and is uh, wants to get in on the deep end of the pool and wants a hot field trial dog and learn how to, she's going to hang out with me and learn how to train uh, pointing dogs and try and get in some trials. Right. Um, and uh, she's a, I would do this for any client. I try not to recommend dogs that I wouldn't own myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because the dogs that I want to own are awesome field dogs, but they have an off switch. And quite honestly, really, both in pointing dogs and retrievers, the best dogs I've ever trained were amazing in the field, but were also nice and quiet in the house. And I've owned dogs that were okay in the field and a nightmare in the house. Okay. 
so um, trying to find her um, the kind of dog that I would want to own if I was going to run, let's say, U.S. Complete Shooting Dog, uh, American Bird Hunter, National Bird Hunter, you know, some sort of some sort of walking trial. But I want a dog that has demonstrated, its parents have demonstrated an ability to be uh, cooperative with training because mm-hmm. there's a lot of dogs out there that 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 don't do really well with training um, other than a, uh, the superficial amount necessary to go out and stay on course and get caught after time. Okay. <laughs> if you get my drift. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, I, I'd like to a male for, um, but a female's not out of the question. Well, I, uh, Remember that same, my same buddy, Tim Cavanaugh, I, I gave yeah. uh, him your number because I Great. figured you would, uh, I want a dog out of Tim's dogs. I don't know if that means anything to you, but yeah, no, um, it, it, it's a, it's a Chase Hill little bud uh, line that he's thinking about and his bitch just came in the heat. Um, now that's a later breeding. There's some other stuff that I wanted to send your way from down here in Kentucky, Krause Kennels. Um, and they've got some really good stuff. So I wanted to make sure that I, you know, gave you my references and things like that. And I just thought about it and I was just like, huh, let me ask Alec, like, what are you looking for? You know what I'm saying? Like uh, before I just, I mean, I've already started looking for you, but you know, um, and I, I just never, I didn't ask you that. And it's also funny that, um, and I'm writing an article on this, I'm going through three handlers that I speak to. They're all three of them are black. I don't know if that means anything, but I, I like their style of handling. And, and, and I think their African-American experience has a lot to do with what they're looking, looking for in a dog. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, um, I asked all three of them, what are you looking for in a field trial dog? And it was very interesting. The, uh, the responses that I got, so the first one was David Johnson. He uh, he was a scout for Robin Gates, um, you know, and and ran you know national champion dogs and things uh-huh. like that. So I asked him. I said, uh, he said number. I said, what are, what are I said, what are your top three things that you're looking in a, at in a, in a field trial prospect? He says number one is what they look like around game. Number two would be how they are around people and number three uh class movement so you know how you move you know how slick are you how smooth are you what you think about that 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 was from david and then from george my buddy george gordon who i got this last little dog that i'm working on now from uh hang on i'm looking at the message now okay he says his top three things, he wants good dog work, being able to handle, a slam point, and a good handler. What you think about all of that? Yeah. Um, what I would say is I want I want good physical confirmation, okay? I want legs that are straight. I want a tight foot. I don't want big, long, gangly toes. I don't want overbites or underbites. Um, obviously it'd be nice to have a, uh, a, a nice dog that's 
nice to look at, not really snipey, you know, looked like a fox out there running around in the field. And obviously, you know, tails are, you talk about tails forever, but I like that, that slam into point, you know, real, real hard point, even Mm -hmm. if they aren't in the American field magazine winner's table posture with their head up in the air, you know, um, uh, you know, I under, I understand that a lot of judging things that, that we judge dogs on are what we've decided they should look like, you know, standing up on the toes with their chin up in the air and their 12 o'clock tail. And and I like like that, but why is that like, because why does a dog get disqualified for having be pointing (laughs) downward? It, it, right. Because it's I just, tr- honestly, I trust the dog more that's doing it, but I like my dog's head high if I can get it. It's just human convention. People have decided that this is the judging standard of what we think they should look like because at some point, some dog probably naturally looks like that and that influenced them. So every other dog's got to look like that. Man, I'm a big fan of pretzel points. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't help, doesn't help, uh, win a trial, but I like those dogs that they hit that scent and it doesn't matter. They come sliding mm-hmm. into a stop sideways and all twisted mm-hmm. around with like super intensity. I, I mean, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's great. So, you know, obviously they're pointing style, but they're actual physical confirmation. And this is an observation that you can bounce off a lot of your, uh, professional friends. I have seen that the higher a dog lifts its upper leg, upper front legs, its foreleg, more closely to parallel, the lighter the dog hits the ground and the less tiring it is for the dog to run. Really? Okay. So, yeah, if you just think of a dog out in front of you and you think of the dog's wrist, Okay. Imagine from the wrist to the shoulder, that part of their leg, when they're really running, it can go high with a lot of freedom and parallel to the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, Dogs like that, when they come running by, you don't hear them. They got a really light touch on the ground and they don't seem to tire as quickly as those shortly coupled dogs that don't have a lot of freedom in their shoulder and they come by and it sounds like a, you know it sounds like a herd of elephants coming by they're just slamming by right. i had a i do a lot of work with rescue dogs i'm a big proponent maybe we do another podcast on getting a getting a bird dog from a rescue but uh the Absolutely. first couple of dogs, the first couple of dogs i ever rescued was a, a pair of pointers um when i was in south carolina they had Demodex manes. They were six years old, six months old, pardon me. And the people didn't want to fool with them. They were going to put them in the ground. And I'm like, well, Demodex is like really curable. Um, and they go, well, do you want them? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll take them. They're the first dogs I sort of rescued. Man, that was a long time ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, and the male, okay, that, that dog was unbelievable. He could, when he ran, it was like his foreleg almost came up higher than his head. Yeah. Okay. And he would run by me and it was like a breeze blowing by. You just wouldn't hear him. Yeah. And one day I was running covered dogs out in the woods on our property. And it was, it was a hot summer day here in Vermont. Nothing like you get down there, but it was upper eighties and it, it was, it was a pretty rough day. And after about 20 minutes, most of those dogs were like, yeah, I've had enough today. Okay. So I ran, I ran four different dogs. And this 
pointer, Clyde, ran with all four dogs, and I never saw him open his mouth. Wow. <laughs> he literally just, just hey, never just, got just tired. Never, I was going to say just, just winding it on his nose alone. Yeah, he was like wow. totally fine, and they're all sucking wind after 20 minutes. And he, you should have bred off of that other, dog, man. Yeah, I've seen Well, he had Demodex, but well, I've seen yeah. some other dogs other dogs like him that that high lift of the front leg and that lighter touch and the quieter touch on the ground it doesn't mean they're going to be field champions at all it doesn't mean they're going to be the best dogs ever maybe they have other problems but man that's i like to see that that light touch rather than that shortly coupled dog mm-hmm. um so for me and the way i like to uh bring dogs along i want you know, some degree of cooperation, you know, your, your, your buddy there said handling, you know, training, some ability to cooperate with me and, and not just be uh, really independently focused and off in your own program. Um, You know, those are the things that I do. And of course, for me, um, I don't keep my dogs in a kennel. You know, I keep my dogs in the house. I got to look at them all the time. You know, (laughs) know, nice dogs and nice to look at too, you know. Well, you got um, that so little Malinois, man. You make me want to get one. <laughs> there's, there's millions out there in rescues. That's for that's I for would, sure. I would get a Malinois. I'm sorry. I'm pretty. I don't know if I could do a rescue Malinois, but I would do a Malinois. I would. I would. Because I, I, I want to train it myself. Yeah. Like from, from the ground up. You need to, one of the reasons uh, a friend who's been a pro with those dogs for a long, long time and knows so much more than me, it's unbelievable. He said, is in his opinion, one of the reasons there's so many kind of sketchy, screwed up Malamaws out there is they're not allowed to express their genetic desire, which is to grip and bite things. Okay. Right. Uh, that's what they like to do. I mean, you buy a thoroughbred and you put it in a stall and it's just stuck in a stall right. and you should be surprised that kicking and weaving and dangerous and cribbing and doing all sorts of aberrant behaviors. A poor horse needs to go out and run, you know, that's his genetic desire to run. So the way I describe those dogs is with the proper training. Okay. They turn into Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. and Muhammad Ali never got out of the ring and started punching spectators. He knew who he was fighting. He knew what the rules were about fighting. There was a referee. He knew when the fight started. He knew when the fight was over. Right. Okay. And that's what a good trained protection dog is. If you have poor breeding, bad training, or no training, you just might end up with a drunk in the bar at 2.30. Right. Okay. You don't know who, you don't know who that guy's going to hit. Okay. Or why. So, they're they're great dogs if you get them with purpose, and the purpose should be to do something that has the the that addresses the dog's genetic needs. Um, I originally I just started training rescues for free. Someone would show up at my house and say, "Oh yeah, I rescued this dog," and I go, "Well, that's that's nice of you." I tell you what, I'll just train it for free, and they go, "Why would you do that?" And I'm like, "Dogs have given me." a 30 year career. I like right. dogs. It's the least I can do. You saved this dog's life. Let me help you out. I'll train the dog for free. And nice. that that's, started that's getting really a dope, crazy. man. That's super dope. <laughs> that started getting a little out of control. You know, yeah. I, had a, had a, I was saying your dog's free quite a bit. So I started doing it for some breed rescues where I would take, um, 
a dog from a breed rescue, a pointer or a short hair, a national 501c rescue. And I just trained it for free to make the darn dog more adoptable and was pretty darn successful with that. I trained a, a lot of rescues that went on to great homes and were great hunting dogs. And that was all wonderful. And now I've kind of segued into doing a lot more work with the Malinois rescues um, because, quite honestly, if you got a screwed up short hair, you got a screwed up Labrador, uh, there's a lot more people willing and able to fool with those dogs. And while I'm no expert um, compared with a lot of my uh, friends and peers, there's not a lot of people out there, professional people. There are some, and they're amazing, better than me. But there's not a lot of resources and people that want to take on a Malinois with a bite history. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I will. Um, so now I've done, I've been doing more work for the Mal rescues and trying to help get those sorted dogs, uh, those dogs sorted out and find them homes and been, been pretty successful that way. So. Okay. okay. Well, that's super noble, man. And I, I, I definitely applaud you for that one. Um, that's pretty cool. I didn't actually know you were doing all of that. <laughs> I find yeah. out something else about you every time we talk. Yeah, you know, it's not something I throw out there. Oh, look at me. I'm a great guy. I'm training rescues for free. But I am a really big advocate. And if we're on rescues, you know, I'll talk for a second. It's, it's discouraging that in the sporting world, if you bring up rescues, it's like across the board, the same thing. Oh, those those damn rescues they wouldn't they wouldn't give me a you name the breed of honey dog because they're all bunny huggers and they think hunting's cruel and they don't want their you know they, i would have given it the best home ever um but they wouldn't they wouldn't uh uh get me a dog then there's the oh they want three hundred dollars to rescue a dog they should be paying me you know why am i paying for a rescue like these rescues just get these dogs and don't do anything with them. You know, a lot of the dogs come in in terrible condition, require uh, vet work and care and stuff. And the rescues are also strapped for money and, and volunteers and stuff. And people are like, oh, I give it such a great home. But the process, and I'll be the first to admit, a lot of the rescues, the process to get a dog is so onerous. But I think a lot of people just say to heck with it. I'm just going to buy a puppy. Right. I mean, big applications, multiple references, phone numbers, vet checks, house visits. Um, it can be very, very, um, very difficult to go through. And quite honestly, a lot of people in the rescues are extremely difficult to deal with mm-hmm. because they're animal lovers. They aren't necessarily super highly skilled trainers by any stretch of the imagination and i just remind myself every day when i encounter a difficulty dealing with a person i'm just like alec you're doing it for the dog (laughs) you're doing it for the dog just suck it up and stop whining like a school child you're doing it for the dog and i I have to do that a lot um have you 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 have any of them come in and see what you you know kind of have how you handle your bird dogs outside and kind of have an issue with it uh, I, I'm not sure I understood that. Question. Like, do you have any of them that, you know, learn that you're a, a hunting dog trainer and have an issue with you training dogs to hunt? Oh, absolutely. And the fact that I use uh, electric collars, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're, I mean, 
I, even though that you're going in and doing all of this and making the dog more adoptable. I have to be very well crafted in my talking points to convince the rescue organization that they're pure positive, terrified of electric collars, that, yeah, it's really okay. And I have the skill to do this humanely. And, you know, I use 30 years of, of that artful, um, those artful talking points to explain it. And I've been able to do it across the board with multiple breed rescues that I'm allowed to train their dogs as I normally train dogs, but literally, you know, other people aren't. So, you know, I, I say to people, when you encounter those difficulties with the rescue, you just, you, you, you just need to, if you're a good enough trainer that you can really do it, properly, uh, compassionately and humanely and uh, really uh, do it the way it should be done, then you need to be able to explain that and demonstrate it, okay, um, to the rescue organization that this is this is this is gonna help save this dog's life and it's not inhumane. That whole thing with the purely positive thing that's sweeping the country um, is really it's really kind of a it's not even a slow motion train wreck. It's going pretty fast. Okay. Yeah. Is it, I mean, what, now, what, what is, cause like, I, I'm, I'm not one of those purely positive people. I obviously, you know, I'm the guy that almost lost a dog last weekend, put it that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously I'm not, but like, what, what, where's all it is coming from in terms so, of so training here, here, here. a bird dog? Uh, well, you know, you literally don't see it that much. I, I mean, I think the pendulum swings the other way in the sporting dog community. I think the the sporting dog, you know, retrievers, flushing dogs, bird dogs, I think it's still pretty, you know, old school yank and crank. Put them on a leash, you know, put them on a table, pinch your ear, shock them with a collar, you know. So it, you think that purely just, positive thing is not so much in the bird dog community, but outside of the community? Oh yeah, totally. It's not in it's not in the sporting community hardly at all. There are some some forward thinking people, obviously, uh, probably some people better known uh, by name than me that that uh, are talking about uh, uh, offering conditioning, marker training uh, for dogs. You know, like I did in the previous episode, but. By and large, it's it's uh, the pet market. If you think of the pet market versus the hunting dog market, it's like talking about how many French fries I've sold versus how many French fries McDonald's sold. Right. I mean, the pet market yeah. is massive. And ultimately, the pet market is going to decide potentially down the road how we train dogs. Right. Okay. That's true. They're, now, now let me ask you this, though. Can you be purely positive with a bird dog? With a field, with, and I want to keep it even more specific with, with, with an all-age trial dog. Okay, so here's here's where I come from. As I said earlier, we have to train these dogs to do things that they may not want to do, and we have to stop them from doing things they really want to do. I have not figured out how to do that without some consequences or compulsion being involved. The level and how you use those consequences and compulsion, that's open to, you know, personal interpretation. What some people think is fine, other people think, you know, might think would be terrible. All right. Mm -hmm. If the thing that I don't understand is like I run into a, a fair amount of people and we get talking about training and I hear all the time, oh, none of that, none of that cookie training for me. 
I mean, it's just the first thing out of their mouth um, when it comes to reward-based training. None of that for me. And I'm like, what is your emotional attachment to how you train dogs and why are you so vehemently opposed to another method? Because quite frankly, if someone told me I could train um, a national champion throwing Fig Newtons at it, man, I'd be buying a lot of Fig Newtons tomorrow. I could care less how I train it. I'm more concerned about the results. My goal is to train the dog to the highest level that I think that dog is capable of using the least amount of force, pressure, and compulsion possible because I don't see any benefit to it um, beyond those parameters. But it's pretty easy to find information on force fetch that, oh, it's this huge adversarial contest between you and your dog. And if you don't show it that you're in charge and mastered in force fetch, you'll never have a good training relationship with your dog. And it's just, I mean, it's enshrined doctrine that all the newbies are told and they glam onto it and pass it on the next generation. And it's just like utterly crazy. You know, you can't have a rela- a good training relationship with a dog unless you dominate the force fetch. You know, right. I, I just I just don't buy that. So, um, it, you know, really the uh, there's well organized and well funded groups with great spokespeople and a great emotional argument that are working at the national level to control the methods and tools we use to train dogs. Okay. And the metric to the pet owner is really simple. Do you love your dog? Well, yes, I love my dog. Would you ever do anything to intentionally hurt your dog? Oh, no, I'd never hurt my dog. Then why would you use tools and techniques that cause your dog? And they always say pain. Well, I never would. I don't think those tools should be allowed. And it's like I said, it's a great emotional argument. Um, They have a uh, argument in one sense that a lot of you people use those tools and techniques pretty poorly, in my opinion, uh, fairly cavalier. Uh, they can take it. It's never, you know, it's not going to kill them. Big deal. You know, I, I, I think some of our own worst enemies are in our own ranks who use, use those tools poorly. The, the misguided part is them thinking that, for example, if you got rid of electric collars, it's going to be nothing but unicorns and rainbows. And we know that's not going to be true. Abusive people are going to be abusive they're gonna figure out a way regardless you know with their sticks they don't need you know they don't need an electric collar to be abusive oh it's more about education and as i said in the other podcast i'm obviously an incredible proponent of properly used electric collars i'm really apprehensive of their widespread use you know um i you know i don't know what the answer is um other than than education, you can't really, I don't see any way in a country this size is diverse with as many uh, different dog training disciplines and whatnot to have any sort of certification or something like that. Um, it just comes down to education and personal responsibility. You know, here's a crazy example. I, first time I wintered in South Carolina, well, first time I wintered in Texas 27 years ago, I came from Vermont. We generally don't throw stuff out our windows in Vermont, okay? (laughs) Um, uh, When we're driving down the road. I got to Texas and going through the south, I'd never seen so much garbage on the side of the roads in mine. I just was flabbergasted. You know, I was Mm -hmm. really naive. I had a pretty sheltered upbringing probably, and I was flabbergasted. That was just how it was done. 
Now, there's still a bit of a difference. Uh, by and large, I think <laughs> Vermont's pretty roadside clean, although it's gotten worse. But the South, um, in my experience of going there for all these years, has gotten a lot better. You know, there's not as much um, trash on the side of the road. So crazy analogy, but I think that speaks to training methodology. You aren't going to train it. You aren't going to change it overnight, but through education and some thoughtful, thoughtful discussions where someone's just saying, well, you're doing it wrong, you know, which makes people just dig in and say, no, I'm not. I'm doing it right. Some give some people some ideas and maybe approach it this way and let them kind of go, hey, you know, I'm going to give this a try. And man, that really worked. And, you know, things, things evolve, you know, they aren't radical changes, but um, like my whole thing on force fetch, it's, it's no big deal. You spend a couple extra weeks. um, Well, if you do a couple extra weeks of the praise and reward hold, and then you do a few extra days with just that press rather than, introduction of heavy pressure right off the bat what have you risked you know like a couple weeks big deal and it's just a more fair way for your dog and then segue into whatever reasonable level of pressure gets you the uh, fastest non-panic response it's just an evolution of how you do it you know it's more fair to the dog like i don't know we can (laughs) we we can always talk about flank collars too (laughs) come on come on with it because i use flank collars too come on with it Okay, why do you use a flank collar? My turn to be in charge. Why do you use a flank collar? I use a flank collar because of my understanding of how a dog operates based off of, again, my own, the, what I was taught. Okay. You know, and the, that was, it's easier for the dog to understand, whoa, with the flank collar uh-huh. and they keep turning and recall at the neck? Uh, no. Uh, well, handling, I don't, I don't really use recall for, I don't, necessarily use yes. an e-collar for recall i do that when they're puppies so i don't have to handling like left right casting a, a dog left casting a dog right having them get in tune to me singing and t- singing to them and then uh whoa of course is at the flank the dog's brakes is at the back that's that's how i was taught okay so here here's how i approach it um a highly trained Labrador, which is where I started, knows probably eight different commands around its neck. Okay. Mm-hmm. It knows to sit. It knows to heal. It knows to come. It knows uh, maybe to lie down. Uh, fetch is enforced with a collar. Fetch at a distance, which we call force to a pile, is enforced with a the collar. They understand um, indirect pressure and direct pressure. And those are all learned seamlessly around the neck i've literally never seen anybody put a flying collar on a retriever right okay um your answer was a little bit different i've heard from an awful lot of people that i have to teach my directional control commands around the neck and then i have to teach woe on the flank and then transition it to the neck because it's too difficult for the dog to understand those uh, conflicting commands, an action command and a cease action command, action, turn or come, cease action, stop and stand. It's too difficult for them to understand that on the neck. Hmm. I'm like, wait, you're telling me that my lab, and I love Labradors, man, but 
they are they're blue collar workers. They aren't necessarily right. the sharpest dart in the board. Right. Like my, they're good I've dogs, heard. but they're 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 working dogs, yeah. My my lab can learn eight commands around the neck and my bird dog's too stupid to learn two or three. Right. Okay. Plus if you go flank, um couple other things come to mind. I tried flank collars. I used flank collars a long time ago. I tried them out. I've never put a neck collar on a dog and seen any adverse reaction. I've never put a flank collar on a dog and not seen somebody around a bit, you know. Some really, really don't like it when uh, they have that flank collar on. Just another experience I don't want my dogs to have. You know, oh, they yeah. work through it. Yeah, they work through it. I don't want them to have to work through it. Okay. Um, if you go flank and then up to the neck, well, there's another transitional step. So there's probably some more pressure and more training there. If you start on the neck, you just avoid it. And anyone that says that a neck collar used on woe, for example, will cause the dog to lie down. Well, then it's the way you're using it's it. The way that, yeah, the I was gonna say, that's just, that's just pressure that you, that you have a neck collar on. It's one of those things. I know some people build their whole system on it. People that are better known than I am. Uh, they live and die by the flank collars and more power to them. I just think it's just kind of an unnecessary tool like a table or a barrel. I just do stuff on the stuff on the ground around their neck because honestly, what's a more natural point of communication for a dog than its neck? Little puppies, adolescent dogs. Uh, dogs practicing behaviors for adulthood, which we call playing, you know, fighting and mating and stuff when they're out, you know, just joyriding in the exercise yard. They're dragging each other around by the neck all the time. When they fight, they grab each other in the neck. I have never put a stitch in a dog's butt. It's always in their face right. and their neck. When males sometimes mount females, they grab them in the neck. Um, a big thing in England I don't know how big it is, but a thing in England they call it the scruff shake, where you just grab a grab a uh, some loose skin around the dog's neck and just you know you don't hurt him, but you just hold it and you you kind of explain stuff to him. That's really natural in the dog I world. I do that to my know? puppies, right? And so to me, uh, I coined a little phrase on my own years ago called continuity of concept, and that was that whole silly force fetch thing where it was ear stick marble then back to the like what's the continuity of the concept there i understand what you know what the stick does if you do it right and all that but i would rather just do stuff in the neck which is such a natural point of communication for the dog and they, they really understand it and it eliminates any additional steps and again i want to use you know i prefer to use as little pressure as possible Okay. And I know some people would, you know, they'll put a half hitch around their dog's flank with the check cord or off a woe post or something like that. You know, it, it pinches like hell. And, you know, some dogs, they barely feel that pressure and they're like, oh, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to get a big pinch. I'm happy to, I'm happy to comply with whatever you want me to comply with. Um, I've seen some other people put, blank hitches on dogs on wolf posts and those dogs basically threw themselves on the ground and screamed bloody murder you know mm -hmm. um they just they they tried to get away from it they didn't understand they're trying to teach a dog to do something using what i would say would be a threatening level of physical physical pressure where 
I'm using physical pressure, but it's just the little tugs and releases and low levels of the collars and non-distracting environments and then gradually, gradually, gradually exposing them to different things. So you never, you, I do everything in my power to avoid those really, um, uh, those situations where my dog only barely knows to come when it's called in a quiet environment and now it bumps a deer, you know, and goes chasing after that. I, I, you know, I want to avoid those those out of context enforcements if I can. It's mm-hmm. in perfect world. It's just what I'm working for, you know. Right. So, I know flank collars work. I know there's very very successful systems that employ them. There's just they're just something that I don't really think. I I honestly don't think you need. At least that's been my experience. Oh, for sure. And I, and I can totally respect that. Like I said, I. I'm going off. I actually really appreciate your insight on it first and foremost, because it is a valid, you know, way of thinking. I, uh, I'm pretty much kind of one of those, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of folks. Yeah. You know, the most terrifying, terrifying phrase in the human language, the the, uh, English language is, well, that's the way it's always been done. Uh And and that's terrible. That is the worst (laughs) thing in the world to think about. And I know I'm too smart to succumb to that. But I, 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 but I, that flank thing, (laughs) you know, I'm just like, do I want to go off of that? Yeah putting your dog up on a barrel that's mounted on a car spring with a wire over his head. So when he falls off, he hangs himself. So just but see, front, I don't want to, I don't legs I, can touch the ground. Yeah. That works too. It, you know? I guess. Is that really working though? Like, is that working or is it scary? See, that's the thing. Like, I don't, I'm not into scaring the shit out of my dog. I'm just not like, but, you know, I mean, that's the part of the whole discussion of using pressure training dogs is what somebody thinks is reasonable. Somebody else doesn't. It you know yeah. it's just as simple as that. And and people go, oh, well, you know that Alex Bark guy. He's just a bunny hugger, and he can't do what it takes to you know can't stomach what it takes to train dogs. Well, why? I just don't get the why use pressure unnecessarily. Okay, yeah. and, and, here, and I th- okay, so that that's the key thing unnecessarily. I don't right. think either of us is advocating for unnecessary pressure. And I think but that they, then, go ahead. there's this degrees of what's necessary pressure. And here's how I describe it. Imagine if you had a well and out of that well is where you get all your water, mm-hmm. but you can't see the bottom of the well. It's really deep, but every day you throw the bucket down there and it comes up full of water, but your whole life depends on that water. Okay. So, you're going to use it, but you aren't going to be throwing buckets of water in the air going, yeehaw, yeehaw, look at all the water I have. I'm a water baron because you don't know how deep that well is and you really need that water. That's the way I approach pressure. Okay. I've never seen a dog in my life that you couldn't put under too much pressure um, that you would screw it up. So I'm not afraid to use pressure. I think I need to use pressure because I haven't figured out how to do it without some consequences, which mm-hmm. I think is very natural for any living thing. Yeah, I think uh, so I think I think if most human beings figured out how to not use pressure, I think most dog men would be like, "All right, shit, let's let's go that way." Well, but see, you would think that, but that doesn't square with the people that look me in the eye and say, "I'll never do any of that treat training, no cookie training for me." Um, 
I have a, a great friend that used to train with one of the most well-known successful retriever trainers in the country. And, um, she said to him one day, you know, you might, you know, want to take a look at this whole reward based training stuff. You know, there's really, there's really some really cool stuff there. And he goes, Nope, no interest. And that was the end of the conversation. Never again. His opinion was I'm winning national championships. I'm one of the most successful pros in the country. I'm not even going to look at anything else. And that's just how some people's minds work. That's not how my mind works. Um, yeah. Again, people are very interested in the, the source of their information rather than the information. I've learned a lot of good things from people who are terrible dog trainers. Because yeah. I'm like, whoa, I never want to do that or I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, that's kind of interesting the way they're doing it. And if they change that a little bit, it might be successful. So, I'm not just running around trying to find some big name trainers that have fancy websites or write articles in magazines or have won national championships. I want to kind of look at everybody and take their information and can I get anything out of that? And you get great things from people who have won national championships. No question about that. Um, but you pay attention and you're a student of things. You can learn an awful lot from people that haven't won national championships. Oh, dude, my mentor has not won a national championship. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a ton of great things. And I, I mean, I, I point Neil out all the time, but like, it, it's, it's not the guy that, it's not always the guy that, that wins the national championship. It's the guy that knows the art of bird dogs. Yeah, well, I always like to say when someone says, well, you know, who you learn from has to have done it themselves. I like to say Bella Caroli never did a backflip on a balance beam. Right. There you <laughs> but, go. But, but he certainly coached a lot of people to Olympic medals. There you, you go. Know? So, and, and, um, and then, you know, the, 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 the component, one of the components that you have in your toolbox, if your dog is holistically collar conditioned and holistically understands woe, command, turning, and come is a little thing I stumbled on years ago where I can enforce staunchness with the collar with no verbal command. Mm -hmm. And if you can enforce staunchness with no verbal command, you can enforce staunchness at any distance that you can see your dog. And if you can enforce staunchness at any distance where you can see your dog, those dogs get thinking, hey, I don't even know where he is, but I, I got to do this right yeah. when he's not even around. Right. You know? Um, so I'm a, a, a big proponent of transitioning my dogs to that um, concept of being able to bump him with the collar on woe with no verbal command and have him, having them understand that that means I'm not supposed to take another step. What does that look like? Give me like a play-by-play. A play. So as they're transitioned off the check cord and they're on the collar, they're going down the field, I'm turning them as much as necessary, <laughs> recalling them as much as necessary, and stopping them on woe while I generalize that skill. Through that process, I go, woo, ask them to come to a stop. If they have like a slow, coasty stop, maybe a little bump with the collar, you talked about threshold earlier. It, I tell people that using that 
system, if you ask your dog to turn or come and whoa, and it takes three quick bumps. Let's say you're on your, your Garmin 550 Pro there, and you're on level three, and you say whoa, and you're on the low momentary button, and you go whoa, and you go tap, 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 maybe three or four taps to get the dog to stop. That might be telling me that maybe I should try medium, or maybe I should go up in intensity um, the next time, because I would like to see them comply on one bump. Um mm-hmm. But you don't want to go over that tolerance threshold and, and give them too big a bump so they literally can't comply. So I tell people they're safer with two or three bumps getting command compliance, but put that in your mental computer that you might want to try a, a hair longer duration or maybe a hair higher intensity. But back to the process, there I'm telling them to woe. If it's a coasty woe or something, Uh, give them a bump with a collar. Now they come to a stop. So I'm going through the different distractions that I've detailed before and the dog takes a step. I go, woo, and I give it a neck with a collar. The dog goes, oh, yeah, I got to stand here. I would say we're probably a few weeks and fairly far along, maybe to the point where I'm hand-throwing pigeons for the dog and he's standing there for that. Okay, he's that well schooled on woe and woe enforcement with a collar. So now as he's running along, I'm going to ask him to woe. No birds, no huge distractions, maybe minor distractions. I make a flushing effort. He takes a step, and I'm going to nick him and then instantly say woe. All along, I've gone woe, nick, and now he takes a step, and I'm going to nick, and I'm going to say woe. All right. And what you see, what I see very quickly, usually in just a matter of a few days, I can start, I'll start delaying the follow up verbal woe. So it starts with bump, woo, then it goes to bump, woo, then it goes to bump. Oh, look, I don't even need a follow up woe. He stopped moving. And they start understanding that. Once I'm stopped, if I feel that bump, that's enforcing the woe command. And that's how they get their foundation in that. And then you need to gradually, you know, um, add it into the higher distractions and bird work. But people don't believe. I have videos. They, They go, you can't use an electric collar on a dog without a you know, without a verbal command on point, it'll, you know, he'll lie down, you know, he'll flip over backwards. That's the, you know, the art is judging the intensity for the state of drive the dog is in. And when they're on point, they certainly can't handle the collar pressure that they can when they're maybe chasing a bird or long distances on a, on a, on a big flyer down, down a hedgerow or something like that. Um, so that's why I like collars like the Garmin 550 because I can go so quickly. A dog might be on level one, mm-hmm. two, or three, low momentary, on point to enforce whoa. And then I cut that dog loose and he takes 10 steps and busts a feral bird and he doesn't stop and he goes to chase it. Man, one, two, or three is not going to do anything now. I can say, whoa, till I'm blue in the face. I need that up to four maybe on that particular dog. And those collars with the um, 
dense stop rheostat, let me make those uh, intensity changes super quickly, much more than the collars that you have to operate the um, uh, the intensity like a safe cracker. There's no dent stops. You can't really ever tell exactly where you are unless you're looking at an LED screen. And yeah, like my dog's chasing a deer or a bird, I'm going to look at an LED screen to see right. what intensity I'm on. It's just, it doesn't doesn't really make sense. So it's just incredible when the dogs start understanding that and you kind of artfully phase it in. The dog goes on point 100 yards ahead of you. It's in a training situation, and you know there's a bird there. You planted the bird, or it's in a release. You know it's there. Your dog slams into point, and as you're walking down, uh, you know, coming in on him, all of a sudden, you know, he starts catwalking forward. It doesn't matter whether it's 30 yards away or 300 yards away. You just bump him on that, bump him silently, and he's like, oh, that's right. I got a woe even when this guy's not around, Right, you know? Um, and it goes a tremendously long way to getting dogs to handle birds responsibly when they're on point without the trainer being around, which is what we want if we're going to hunt our dogs out of gun range. Well, I think you are on to some magic, my friend. <laughs> it, 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 it's, not, it's, not, it's not really magic. And. Well, the it's not, I, but it 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 <laughs> simplifies the process. Is what I'm getting at. Like the it, thing, the thing, the thing that I struggle with, and I've considered it as a column for Upland Albanac Magazine, is why you don't want to train like Alex Sparks. Okay, because it is kind of difficult and artful, and you need to have the right temperament, and you have a lot of chainsaws in the air. Um, if you can't check cord the dog really, really well and not get tangled up and not get angry and not keep the slack out of the system and really work him back and forth and, and whoa and appropriate bumps and all that, how are you going to do that with the transmitter in your hand? Okay. Right. So you got to be really good with a check cord. And then I tell people um, that work with your dog for a week with a transmitter, but the dog doesn't have a collar on. Just practice pressing that button at the same time that the dog's feeling the tugs on the check cord. So you you have some skill because if, if you're if you're sloppy with your transmitter work, um, you know that's a problem. I advise people to start at really low non-threatening levels. Even if you waste a couple of weeks and your dog literally doesn't even feel the collars, you're sneaking up intensities. Better to waste a couple of weeks. Um, then um, try and get a behavior right away using a high level that creates a problem. Blinking, right. lying down, you know, false pointing, all sorts of things you can create. So the downside of the way I train dogs, whether it's force fetching on the ground, um, check cording, even reward-based training, okay, is it, it's, it's hard, it's complicated, it takes some coordination, and you need to, you need to really apply yourself to do it. And some people have the temperament and the skill to learn that and other, other people really don't, you know, they, they get too frustrated. I've seen professional trainers that you hand them a leash any longer than six feet and two minutes later, they're swearing their tail off because it's tangled around their foot. They just don't mm -hmm. have the temperament to even try and learn how to use it. Yeah. And that's not the way to go, but everybody's got to learn on their own path. So, well, you, know. you know, they, they, they find what works for them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Well, and, and I think I, you and I, either, I mean, I, and I love, mind you, I love your process. Don't get me wrong. But I think there are even some, 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 some subtle differences that you and I have. And obviously you've been training way longer than I have. Um, that I've, I've got to learn to, to reevaluate my own process. And, and that's all you do. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's what I do almost every single day. Um, I don't know, just my makeup. I'm always looking at stuff. How do I do it better? How do I do it better with this dog? Is there a way to do it? I did something today I'd never done before. I started using reward-based marker training with a young flushing dog on turn, recall, and hop. And mm -hmm. I didn't have a – normally I would do that on a leash, so I had control of the dog, and I would – use the rewards in combination with the leash and then overlay the remote collar and things like that. This little guy said, you know what? I'm just going to ask you to come or turn. You seem a little co like you're cooperative. And when you do, I'm going to mark you. And he already kind of understood that. Yes, means I've done something good. I had this little demon running around out in the field today, turning, uh, coming when he was called, hopping in close proximity to me and just on all reward stuff. And what a what an awesomely cool little foundation that the dog's having a blast with. And of course, we're going to overlay, you know, tools of control so he gets the got tos and stuff. But um, man, it's 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 really amazing what you can you know what you can get them to do where there's something in it for the dog rather than I got to reach these these certain targeted learning objectives. And there's that the dog's doing it because if I don't do this, it's bad for me. And I'm all about trying as much as I can to get the dogs to go. If I do this, it's good for me. You there? Sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, okay. uh, you, you you were abducted by aliens for about twelve seconds. Yeah, it just like cut out on me. Sorry, I yeah. uh, I was like messing with my thing. I thought you could hear me. Okay. Yeah. No. No, but you know what I was saying is, but I didn't realize I I couldn't be heard. But what I was saying, like, I think what you're bringing to the table is is asking handlers to reevaluate what it is that they're doing. And, and really asking, okay, is the method humane, but also we're not negating pressure, but how are you applying it? Like you, you've really had me like really rethink, you know, my own practices and what it is that I, that I know what I'm looking for out of the dog, but how am I going about doing it? You know, and, and you you're pretty much stripping things down to the bare bones. Like you're getting rid of, of a lot of unnecessary steps. Like, have you ever seen a retriever pro? Can you imagine taking your retriever to a pro and saying, I want you to teach my dog to sit? And he's going to go, well, I'm going to hook it up to this wall post. Well, I'm going to put it up on this barrel. Well, I'm going to slide a PVC pipe down a, a check cord. And, and you don't need all of that. You know, so I'm going to hold him. You go, what are you, crazy? Just teach him to sit on the ground like everybody else. Right. But in the bird dog world, all those things are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. And, I, you know, honestly, I've given that a lot of thought 
over the years because the retriever training program, the overall program that a lot of serious amateurs, recreational amateurs and professionals use is pretty much the same. It's a lot sort of like we go went through 12 grades of school. There are some little differences here and there. Where it's really kind of the same where in the bird dog world, it's like all over the map. Some people use woe posts and some people use, um, you know, tables or barrels. And there's all these different things. And I'm like, why is there not more a more sort of homogenous method um, in the bird dog world? And this is what I came up with. In the retriever world, the top end, it's changed a little bit, but you had the the national field trial in November, the national mm-hmm. amateur in June. Mm-hmm. Then Huntis came along, and you had the AKC Master National. Now you got the UKC, and you had um, um, North American Hunter Retriever Association in there the whole time. But um, there's just kind of a few people that win the nationals that everyone's aware of, and they're very influential. But in the bird dog world. Man, you got cover trial, cover dog trials. You got open. You got shooting dog. You got you got walking trials. You got U.S. complete. You know, you got national shoot to retrieve. Right. Every state has a um, you know a uh, championship stake, and then there's the quail fraternity and the pheasant pheasant fraternity, and you know the different cover dog things. And there's so many people winning so many different championships that it's just. I think it leads to more diversity in what people have done to win those and the people that follow those people where, like I said, in the retriever world, everything's much more under one roof. Well, you and, also get a different type of judge, too, and you run the risk of having a judge that ran his dog in cover dog trials coming down to the south and judging a Piney Woods trial. You see what I'm saying? When you're talking about yeah. diversity, you get you get a lot of different experiences coming in. And so, you know, you get a judge that is watching a dog that points a whole lot of birds, but that judge doesn't want to see that. That judge wants to see a dog run. You get yep. you yeah, yeah. There's no standardization. And are so are you saying you think there should be a, a more standardized way of working a bird dog? No, not at all. I ne- never say that uh, people have to figure out what is the, the the best system for them. But when you look at, you know, you go back to that thing I talked about before, the availability heuristic. And if this is the only system I know, of course, I think it's going to be the best system for me. Uh, like all the people say, I'll never do any of that cookie training. Well, what do you know about it? You think it's the, the mere fact you're calling it cookie training means you know nothing about reward-based offering conditioning. That's what that means, okay? So the more people can can look at their different systems and figure out what works best optimizing things, and I kind of think minimalizing is optimizing. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't think there's advantage of going from the table to the ground. I don't think there's an advantage going from the neck to, from the flank to the neck. I think it's just additional steps that are unnecessary. Well, People okay, so so that's what I'm saying. Maybe not sta- maybe standardizing was a terrible word. Maybe just like you said, just minimalizing it. I, I and you can't. I, I can't tell people to do that. All I try to do, 
Uh, I know enough about human psychology to know I can't change your mind, Darrell. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as a matter of fact, the more I try to change your mind, the more you're going to dig in and defend what you already think. Right. So just kind of like, I think this podcast is really cool. It's just awesome. You've given me a platform to, to talk about, um, you know, how I train and how I approach things. And it just gives thoughtful people something to think about. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's people out there, you know, rolling their eyes that have already turned the podcast off. And, you know, some some Yankee up there, what does he know about training dogs? And, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And that's the way I'm always going to do it. And judging, I guess, from the input you got and the phone calls. I mean, I put out my phone number last time and I've literally gotten phone calls. You did get from, phone calls. That's cool. Yeah. I've gotten a number of phone calls from people. And it's a guy had a cover dog and was wondering how uh, the dog was great in the field and uh, was having trouble transitioning its skills into cover. Okay. And we talked for quite some time and I said, don't go to cover, get it up in the hardwood. Okay. Yeah. Get it in the quote unquote woods, but there's not a lot of cover. So you have that kind of transitional thing that might help your dog. And he goes, Oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? That's exactly what I need to do with this. Um, right. and, and a couple other calls. Um, where I had a great time talking with people, you know, uh, about their dogs and, and, uh, uh, you know, feedback. And so there's, there's people that are interested in, in, you know, being open-minded to some different ideas and maybe seeing if a different approach, it's just an evolution. It's not a Mm -hmm. revolution. It's just an evolution on what's always been done. Okay. You know, talk about not an evolution. Delmar Smith was check cording dogs and overlaying an electric collar like I do, you know, before I was even a pro. Right. So I'm not doing anything revolutionary. Uh, maybe I've, um, you know, massaged it a little bit in some different ways and uh, um, uh, tried to make it uh, a little more fair and easier for the dogs to understand and put more in it for the dogs, um, especially the low desire dogs, you know, that mm-hmm. don't have the, the ability to put up with, uh, you know, a lot of pressure like the high desire dog. Right. And if people think that they can put that in their system and um, see some results that benefit their dog, I'm all for that, man. While I'm here on a break, I want to just encourage you guys to do two things. Number one, go check out the Orvis shooting grounds um, at Purcell Farms, the shooting school, because I had a chance to go and, and shoot on my favorite piece of the course, which is the um, the driven bird uh, clays portion. It's kind of like driven birds up in, uh, in, in Europe. But what did I shoot while I was there? I exclusively shot my AYA 410, um, which really surprised me. It actually how somehow well some of the targets that I hit um, <laughs> they were some tough targets but the reason that I hit so well was because I was guided and helped and instructed by um, the Orvis shooting instructor Trip Hodges so shout out to Trip for definitely just really I, he saw things that I just didn't see and he definitely helped my wife nail some of those targets also but like I said I exclusively shot my AYA there and I just thoroughly enjoyed it guys go check yourself out in AYA Spanish double guns are the move that is my Spanish mistress as I tell my wife I, I call it my Spanish mistress okay because 
It's just a sexy gun. It is a sexy gun. It is case colored, 27 inch barrels, side by side. One barrel I had custom made um, skeet and the other I had custom. Uh, it's, both barrels are custom made, but I had skeet and I also had improved cylinder on the other side. So that's my quail gun, man. That's my setup. So check out AYA Fine Guns today. And I also, want to encourage you guys to go and check out biomatrix supplements biomatrix are their products is just the next wave and the next level for me to to get done what i need to get done as a field trialer as a hunting guide and as a hunter um you can check them out the products were proof in the pudding and i figured that out when i um was on the shoot for meat eater that's when i really started phasing it in to my dog's uh performance and vegas kept it moving the whole time so all five of the dogs that i have right now um are on it they're doing really really well and i want to shout out to, to julie ounce for always keeping everything um you know, keeping me up to date with all the accomplishments from Biomatrix. Um, they actually had some recent successes in the equine world as well. So check them out. You can go to biomatrix-supplements.com um, and you can use my promo code GUNDOG10 for 10% off your entire order at checkout. You know, I, we, feel that, I, I feel that way about dog training. Really? My big fear in life is that people are going to find out I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I have a lot of self-doubt when I train dogs. Like, really? Am I, doing it, am I doing it right? Am I doing it best for this dog? Is this really the best way? Is there a better way I can do it? You know, and then I, I look at the dogs I train and I go, ah, I should have maybe done that. I maybe should have done this. Maybe well, I, 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 done I think that's what I was trying to remember earlier when we recorded the first episode and I asked you like when do you think you need to change like when do you find a change you kind of were like huh like that's I think that's what I was trying to ask you I'm changing every day you know and I'm always trying trying to be better it's a, you know it's an it's an art you know yeah um, but I'm going to say this to you I'm going to say two things to you first of all you are the hardest person to to ever make a part podcast with. Let me tell you why. <laughs> okay, let me tell you why. You drop gems daily, and minus me like doing something and being on trips or something like that. When we're texting, you you speak in very very profound ways a lot of the time, and I'd be like, damn, why didn't I co cover that? So we're back here now <laughs> for what like the second or third time. It's like the third time now. Yeah, I think this is the third time. And we're just going to put this piece on to um, the podcast. Like, you know, we're, we're just going to add this to the, the second part. But the next part that I want to say, um, you know, as far as, you know, how, as far as anything, I'm very curious to get up there like I really am you sending me these videos and I'm very very curious to get up there and like watch you firsthand so I'm gonna take you up on that offer you've, you've extended it twice now that would be I would be so honored to have you up as uh, I'm sure we a have a great time uh, I'd be really interested to uh, 
spend more time with you uh, rather than a couple hours on the phone and, and see how you train and your thought process and you can see how I train and what my thought process is and the whole, as I've alluded to before, the whole atmosphere here, how I train is very, very, it's, uh, I try to train to the highest level I can, but it's, Man, it's very lighthearted. It's fun. There's a lot of laughing. You know, those little video clips I send you, you hear me laughing. You yeah. know, I'll tell the dog to do something, they'll do it. And it, it's the dog's so happy to, whoa, I, I tell it to move on and it just stands there. And I just got to laugh. But mm-hmm. that, that's how it is. Well, you seem excited about doing the, doing the work in your video. Literally, like I get just as much as much a kick out of your expressions on there <laughs> as you do the dog. Yeah. So, um, but this word, this is where I felt like I hurt your feelings. I told you about uh, how I, and I want to break this down before we get into anything else. How I, how I ended up burning up my dog or whatever recently. He was like, "Dang, I, my jaw dropped." Like something along those lines. I was like, "Dang, I didn't hurt your feelings, man." Um, no, you, you didn't hurt. You didn't hurt my feelings at all. I was just when you said that when you explained the scenario that you had been through with your dog that led the dog into running off. I was I was just a little a little bit dumbfounded. Yeah. Certainly not hurt. I was a little bit dumbfounded. Yeah. You were like, well, "What would you do in that scenario?" And I just threw out an idea off the top of my head while I was just kind of like, you know, sitting there here, like for a second, you know. And I, I gave it a lot of thought over the past couple of days. And obviously, we you know we talked about it a little bit uh, um, today. Yeah. So let's 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 break that down for for a second. Um, Let's go into what you actually would have done. Uh, and then well, let's talk about some of the thing, the, the, the other piece of not applying pressure to fix a problem. Yeah. So I, I guess what I try to do is not just figure out how to fix something. I try and look and see where that problem came from in the first place. Right. Okay. So you wanted your dog going forward with its race. It was coming back. You bumped it with the collar. Invertly, it was on the wrong intensity. It happens to all of us. It's just, you know, the nature of the game. But still, the way I look at it, it was what I've referred to in the podcast as a non-contextual activation of the collar. The dog didn't really understand. Uh, a non-contextual bump from the collar, meaning the dog didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. You give the dog a bump. Hopefully it slows the dog down and then you can use, I assume, a voice and whistle to push the dog back out in front of you. That right. was your goal, right? Yeah. And inadvertently, your collar was on too high an intensity. And I said, you know, it happens to all of us. It's just sometimes we make mistakes. I do it. Um, I trained a dog today for a half an hour. I had a wonderful time. At the end of the training session, I found out I hadn't turned his collar on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that went, that went really well. Right. He didn't have a hot collar on. Man, I'm a, I'm a heck of a trainer. Right. So, you know, we so my thought process would be on well why is not how do i get the dog to go out my thought process is why is the dog coming back in the first place and which is a good question very good the main two things that come to my mind is the dog is insecure you know may i don't i don't even know the dog or its age or any of its history maybe the dog's a little insecure um, doesn't want to be out there, likes to check in, maybe has a history that either you or another trainer of, um, you know, 
some of those something happened out in the field and he's a little reluctant well, to go out you there. You know, she's a so, uh, a plantation dog. Let's you know yeah. to put it in context for you. Right. So she might have some reasons that she's a little reluctant to go out there, or the other reason dogs don't go out is they don't know what the game is yet. And I think the what I said today is, man, I drove by a lot of bars in my life till I learned when what went on inside a bar, then I was pretty motivated to go there. Right. Okay. So, uh, I have a dog right here, uh, here right now. Um, a little Brittany that is just always had a proclivity to put his nose on the ground. The minute he's out of the kennel or the trailer, his nose goes to the ground. And he's so obsessed with that. He just, I mean, he has almost no run in him. Okay. Um, and he had a bunch of bird exposure with me, but it wasn't he started doing anything and I, I switched up birds. I got, you know, bird dropping and man, that little dog turned on and he has a much better uh, uh, race in him now because he knows the game. Right. So, you know, that was my pro- my thought process. Either insecure naturally or a man-made reason or he, he doesn't know the game yet. And well, yeah, I think she, she absolutely bad. is man-made reluctant. <laughs> That's why the guy right. sold her to me for five hundred dollars. So <laughs> you know that that leads, that leads into here. The next thing we talked about, uh, we have to stop them from doing things they desperately want to do, and in some cases, we have to get them to do things they don't want to do. Okay, yeah. and in doing that, sometimes we inadvertently create issues. Okay. My goal, trust me, my goal in training is not to create any more problems for myself. I got, I got enough problems. A lot of them come with enough natural baggage that I don't want to be creating problems. And frequently those problems are created with pressure. Right. It seems to be almost universal that if your dog has a problem with pressure, people try to fix it with more pressure. Mm-hmm. So here you have this dog that, that doesn't want to go out. So you bump it with a collar and put it under more pressure to try and teach it to go out. And that's just sort of a classic example of what people do. Um, now, let me, let me ask you, this. do you think applying pressure to things to get it, what to do what you want to do is like a, a, a human addiction? <sighs> you know, I always said that, not all, but the majority of people that train gun dogs are guys, okay? It's men. Yep. And what do we do when something doesn't work? We hit it with a bigger hammer. Mm-hmm. That, that's just our nature. Mm-hmm. If, if it doesn't turn with a little wrench, we put a big wrench on it. If that doesn't work, we put a pipe on the wrench. Um, the, the ball peen didn't work. I'm going to the three-pound hammer. I'm going to the sledgehammer. I, you know, that's, that's just sort of what a lot of people tend to do, okay? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm no angel. There's not one thing that I'm critical of yeah. that I wasn't guilty of doing it in the past. Right, absolutely. Um, I like to, like to think that I learned from it and found a, a different method or a better way to do it, but I doubt there's a mistake out there in the dog training world that I haven't made. Right. You know? So... That, that fixing, like a classic thing would be in the force fetch world, force breaking, that a dog during the process of doing that maybe 
developed a busy mouth, you know, chomping away like a, like a typewriter. Or I call it machine gun mouth. Yeah. Um, or they develop a hard mouth. Well, what do people do? People dive right into their mouth even more to try and fix the problem that they most likely just created with their force breaking program. Right. Right. Um, one of my most famous cases I ever had here, um, uh, Another trainer called me up and said they had a retriever that they were, I believe, the second or third trainer that dog had been to. And the owner just wanted an upland flushing preserve dog for pheasants back here in New England. Right. The dog had gone to the position where it was available. And they want to know if I wanted it. Okay. I said, sure. But, you know, I'll you take them. Hey, one, one, one second. You said the dog had gone to the position in what now? Uh, the dog was to the point where if you were in the field with the dog and okay. just shot a shotgun, he would bolt from the field back to the dog truck or the dog kennel. Right. Okay. He was that terrified of things. And so I took the dog and he came here and... I put a couple pheasants out, walked down the field, and I think I flushed the pheasants. I think the dog was walking 20 yards behind me. I flushed the pheasants. That dog just turned around and ran as fast as he could back towards the dog trailer. Right. I didn't say a word. No commands, no whistles, no electric collars. I just kept walking. <laughs> the dog stopped about 200 yards away and went, wait a minute. Nothing happened without me so he came out in the field um so we did a few days of that and after three or four days not a command he was busting and chasing pheasants on his own okay (laughs) so next thing i did put some pheasants out pheasant goes out i killed the pheasant that dog heard that gun go off he just turned around and ran for his life again he stopped looked back and was like hey no commands, no whistles, no electric collars. That guy's just walking away. I better go see what's going on. Be good enough that the uh, person that ended up owning that dog guided at a local pheasant preserve with that dog. Oh, wow. Okay. So, the problems he had, they had tried to fix with more pressure. And he was just a dog that just couldn't handle it. It was more mental sensitivity than physical sensitivity. Yeah. Physical sensitivity is easy. You just use less pressure. Right. When a dog is mentally sensitive, that's really complex because they don't like any pressure, light or heavy. Um, and they had just everyone kept trying to put more pressure on him to get him to fix the problems that he had. And all you had to do was let that leave that poor dog alone for a couple of weeks, and he was. Guiding at a pheasant preserve. He was wow. so good. Yeah. That's and, wild, man. Uh, I mean, but what a story. I mean, just let him. And I think that's my lesson, you know, is stop trying to man, manipulate the situation and let yeah, him be. Yeah, we, we always... We always try and train ourselves out of holes, too. In addition to the use pressure to fix problems that are caused by pressure, whenever something's not right, what do we do? We double down. We train harder. We run longer sessions. We get the dog out more often. And, man, my experience is a lot of times the best thing you can do is just, like, put those dogs up. If a dog appears that it it doesn't have the running that I want, I shut the hell up and let the dog run, okay? I'm not turning it and woeing it and doing all sorts of handling and stuff 
And if I got a dog that doesn't need to be busting holes in the horizon and that's all it wants to do, I'm going to be doing more of that. But it's all really adjusted to the dog. And and I had a good friend who I'm helping remotely work with his dogs. And he had this huge revelation the other day. He goes, you know, I just realized you can tell me all this stuff and I can look at your videos and we can talk on the phone endlessly. But I still don't really know how to do it myself and in person. Right. You know, and that, that's the nature of dog training. Um, you put a motor together right, follow the owner's manual. The motor gets spark, compression, gas, oil, uh, gas, oil, and air mixture at the right time. The thing has to run. I mean, it, it can't say I'm not going to run today. Um, it has to. And that's where I think some people get frustrated in dog training and resort to pressure um, is they think they've done everything right and it's not coming out right. I did what Alex Sparks told me and this thing's a train wreck, you know, and, and now they're angry or they're frustrated or they think hitting it with a bigger hammer is the, the answer, even following a system like mine. Um, it's, it's the nuance in dog training, the art in dog training and... I know it upsets a lot of people that have trained a small number of dogs and they've come out well and hats off to them. But the bottom line is the more dogs you fool with, probably the better you're going to be in the long run as long as you're kind of uh, open-minded and curious about the process rather than just trying to have all the dogs conform to the same system. Right. So, look, we... We were talking earlier, and we we mentioned this this idea of a battle axe, right? You you mentioned it, not we. You did, um, and you used a, a very 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 interesting way um, to put things. Like, and and I want to quote you specifically, so let me find it where, exactly where you said. Like, I it was just put so well. Um, Oh man, where was it? It was right. I'm just going through the messages. Um, but basically trying to sharpen a battle axe. Like can, let's let's go through it. I don't let's not get lost in the quote. Let's let's go through what okay. you were referring to. You would explain it so, better than I could. Basically what I said was uh, You know, I, I honestly I have really it, it's difficult for me to as a professional to kind of speak disparagingly about other amateurs and professionals and the training techniques they're using. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying not to do that. But what I really like people to understand is that some of the doctrine and some of the force and pressure used on dogs that's promoted in those doctrines. You really don't have to do that. There's, 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 um, I'm not even going to say new ways. As I pointed out earlier, I got a VHS tape in the basement of Delmar Smith check hoarding dogs and overlaying the collar that, I mean, I looked at over 25 years ago, you know? Um, it, so I didn't invent this. Um, I different twist, and I like to think I've maybe uh, tried to refine some things, but, you know, that's just the nature of times, you know? Um, so I, I hate sounding frequently sounding so critical and I'm not critical. Well, maybe I am a little critical of some individuals that refuse to change. I mean, I constantly hear people like, Oh, I'm not training the dog with, with cookies, you know? Right. Well, we've already discussed, I don't really train my bird dogs with cookies. 
all they've done is perfect the battle axe. Okay, it's still a battle axe, and they 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 changed the way it it looks or sounds, but the end result is still frequently the same. Okay, and. Uh, my God, I just always reiterate, I'm not afraid of pressure on dogs. Right. What I what I dislike is pressure on dogs that they don't understand. Okay, non-contextual pressure. Pressure that is uh, overzealously applied or uh, misused. And pressure that is never-ending. All right. Because... We're all, every animal in the natural world is subjected to, uh, subject to consequences, just like you and I are. Right. And as a matter of fact, we seek out pressure. We thrive on pressure, whether it's work, a sports night, or at the office, because they want to close the business deal. There's a lot of challenging things we subject ourselves to, mental and physical pressure. Um, and it's fine, as long as it's within those parameters. But I just see a lot of dog training that I think is... Um, the, the, the pressure is overzealous, okay. is misunderstood, uh, is too much cumulative pressure, too much trying to teach with pressure. And I guess that might be one of my biggest caveats about a lot of the, the um, popular doctrine is teaching with pressure. Right. Okay. It's, it's let, let's teach the dogs in a, in a more fair manner without using so much pressure. And then we show them how those things are going to be enforced. And then we have to gradually enforce things and not be in a such a rush to go from the table to the bird field with no stops in between. Well, the dog knows it in the backyard. He should know it hunting. Okay. Well, he knows it in the bird field and, you know, he should know it. It's a field trial. You know, there's no should. They either do or they don't. And underperforming dogs, 99% of the time, it relates to their training. And I hear, well, the dog should know by now. I mean, that's like saying you should be able to break 70-yard crossers um, with a 20-gauge. You should be able to do that by now. What's wrong with you? Why can't you? Right. Well, man, I need more practice. I need more time. I need to understand the method I'm using for that, you know, should, should I use swing through? Should I use pull away? You know, I, I got to learn that method. Um, you aren't going to be a better shooter just because I kick you in the butt. Okay. You're going to be a better shooter when you learn to be a better shooter. Right. The dogs get better when they learn to get better and they're held fairly accountable for behaviors we have thoroughly taught. So, Going further on into behaviors, like learned behaviors, right? That directly translates to, you know, another analogy that you made, which is something that my wife and I were literally just talking about the other day and how people's upbringing um, and their personal psychology um, influence how they train dogs. And we weren't talking about necessarily how they train dogs. Like, my wife ain't talking about dog training with me. But... In terms of the idea, the general idea that people's background and history affect how they treat and react, you know, to whatever it is that they, they got going on. In this case, particularly bird dogs. Let's let's get into that, man. I thought that was pretty deep. Well, I, I mean, it, it is in one sense because you don't usually hear people 
talking about dog training, saying it's really about human psychology. But ultimately it is because the humans are the ones that are deciding what programs they're going to use and how they're going to apply those programs. Okay. So it's all about human psychology. So, you know, let's come up with a couple crazy opposite examples. You know, you're born someplace into a family with heavy corporal punishment, very authoritarian father figure, uh, very, very strict. And that's how you're brought up. And then you're brought up in some Buddhist monastery um, trying to become one with the world. I apologize for my ignorance on Buddhist monasteries, but um, you get my crude drift that yeah. you're brought up in a totally different way. Right. And now each of you are going to choose a dog training system. I think I think that if someone is brought up in an environment that is very sort of authoritarian, uh, more strict, more rules, uh, tight leash, uh, perhaps corporal punishment, um, I think they're probably in general would be more comfortable using that sort of system with a dog. Okay, right. if I look at my upbringing, man, if there's anyone out there that should be a purely positive force-free trainer it's me um we had dogs horses cats i grew up in a farming area in vermont um uh, near a, a resort town too and i can honestly say i never saw my parents strike any of our dogs um contrast that to you know probably some of my contemporaries that were brought up in significantly different environments and like i said if anyone should be purely positive it's me but I, for whatever reason, sort of have the ability to work outside, you know, sort of my upbringing, my box of upbringing, and see the, the total logic behind consequences for every living creature as long as they're there and we understand them, you know. Um, if, I could, if I could train a dog to the highest level that dog could train, not using any physical pressure, I'd be the first in line to do it. Like, I don't, I don't understand, other than the fact people are, are comfortable with it, why someone would want to use uh, physical pressure on a dog if they didn't have to, okay? There are clearly people that do. Um, it's just part of their, their psychology, part of who they are, you know? Right. So, you know, is it, I guess it's fair to say that, like, dogs really do bring up or bring out the, the, the true type of person that we are. You know, that's said by smarter people than me. You can tell a lot about a, a, a group of people or a civilization by how they treat their animals, you know? Right. And, you know, I truly, I truly believe that, you know, and again, I, you know, I, I, I hate disparaging. I don't mind disparaging methods, but I don't want people to take it personally that I'm, uh, I'm, telling them that they're bad people because I, I don't believe they are. Um, people are just training dogs the way the popular doctrine, you know, well, overwhelming doctrine says you should. Well, let's, okay. So let's, let's, let's go back. To, let's go to humans and dogs. Let's, let's take a rabbit trail on this one, but right. Let's, let's go to people and dogs and other areas of civilization in the world. Okay. <laughs> the, in, I can't pronounce it, but an Mbuti, um, African, uh, you know, uh, indigenous people. Yep. So they actually run dogs to hunt, you know, obviously not bird dogs, 
But you talk about applying a certain amount of pressure. Like, those folks revere those dogs. You see what I'm saying? Like, those are because uh-huh. those, those dogs are so close to them as far as their, uh, like, their relationship to hunting. Like, they rely on those dogs to help them hunt. And they're so tuned in. Have you seen, have you ever seen any of the videos on them? No, I haven't. Look, I'll, I'll have to send you some, but the way that they kind of work throughout the woods with their dogs, it's a very, 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 like, keyed-in thing. And I don't think they deal with those dogs with the kind of pressure that we do here. Because they're uh, damn near wild dogs. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they... Uh, uh, Garmin doesn't probably ship a lot of co- collars over to those guys. Yeah, it's it's right. it, you know it's it's really a man. There's another three hour podcast on where we've gone with our dogs trying to get what we want. Okay, right. as opposed to uh, I asked a question once. I was invited to join a Facebook group for a certain discipline of dog training, and uh, I was pretty reluctant because. You know, I, I've been down that rabbit hole before, and it's kind of a losing battle when you're a pro to try and post much on discussions. Uh, but I threw a question out there. I said, why do dogs do anything? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, totally benign question. Why do dogs do anything? And, it, you know, there's all these sort of random answers, and some people were taking a shot at it and stuff. And finally, you know, they said, well, why do, do dogs do everything? And I said, well... As I understand it, dogs have fundamental needs. They have to have food. They have to have water. They probably need some degree of shelter or hunting for and pointing a bird, whether it's for looking for a bird and flushing it, retrieving a bird, herding sheep, herding cattle, uh, guard dogs, protection dogs. They have those, those, we bred those drives into the dog, okay? So it's kind of an interesting thing to try and figure out how we can mold a fashion of the the uh, the native people you're talking about, rather than you know the methods we use. And I don't know. I just I, it's just out there. I think probably a lot of it has to do with the, the dogs that they have versus our dogs. You know, I think America's done a great job in breeding dogs that can be trained. I think we've lost a lot of the natural stuff we want. But training really, you think we've lost a lot of the natural ability? Uh, in certain breeds, definitely. You know, um, do you know, tell. I'll let's let's, let's 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 chase that for a second. <laughs> I'll throw I'll throw that, I'll throw retrievers out there. Okay. okay. Um, I'm gonna be 64 in another month, and I got my first retriever when I was 13 years old. Um, fooled around with them for quite some time. And just a few winters ago, I arrived at my wintering spot in South Carolina, uh, pardon me, North Carolina, and I was told there was a dog trainer living in the upstairs apartment. Knocked me over a feather with a feather when I saw it was a pro that I used to run field trials with literally 20 years ago. And I hadn't seen the guy in 20 years. Wow. And that's how long it's been since I've run a field trial. Uh, and he's been running them all along. And in the in the course of the conversation over the next couple of days, I said to him, I said, uh, you know, is it just me or are the labs we trained today not as nice as the labs that we were training back when I was running trials and I was around you? And if he had been drinking milk, it would have shot out his nose. <laughs> he just like snored and said, boy, 
is, isn't that the truth, okay? Um, I can honestly, I'm sure they exist, and maybe someone will call me and tell me I need to get one of their puppies. I can't tell you the last time I had a lab in here that had a nice natural hold, a nice firm hold, um, and delivery to hand without formal training, okay? Um, they all either have a hold so light that they're dropping left and right, or they have that machine gun mouth, that nervous energy that's coming out through their mouth and they're chomping on the dummies. Um, ironically, I had a dog from a uh, show kennel in here, and many generations since that dog's done any field work, and they decided they want to place him. And I said, well, let me see if he has any proclivity for field work. And I have the video. I, I went out in the field, and I threw four long single dummies that showbread dog roared out there belying his physical confirmation where you think he'd be kind of slow he roared out there picked those dummies up um came back uh soft mouth delivered to hand never been force fetched didn't know the command out just came up to me and i put I throw two dummies out in the training pond. He just swims out, gets out of the water, doesn't shake, holds the dummy perfectly, brings it to me, and delivers to hand. I can't tell you when the last time I saw a lab do that, just naturally. And that's the way a lot of them used to be years ago, you know. But we've, we've bred labs that can be trained not and lost a lot of those. Uh, I think we've lost something. So are you a proponent to say, like, I'm interested in kind of those old dogs myself, like those old lines and old stories of dogs. Like I, um, I don't know how, how into field trial narratives and stuff you are, but like guys like Jack Harper, guys like Hoyle Eaton, um, guys like, um, uh, Leon Covington, who I'm reading now, like, the dogs that they talked about back then were, it doesn't seem like they were near as trainable per se, but they had a lot of that natural ability that we we're looking for. And that's where you were able to really truly see the style in the dog. And they really did have to have, deal with a, a, a finesse about themselves to keep those dogs working for them. Well, how about this idea? I may have alluded to it earlier, but so many dogs now are bred on what the final product looks like. You're a champion. You won a championship. You're a master hunter. Um, you go out and, and you're a fabulous hunting dog. So the question, I, I, I mean, I would probably say that a lot of those older dogs, the training probably wasn't as sophisticated as it is now or can be now. And um, the dogs were just sort of more natural, and they were bred to other dogs who were more natural because those people probably weren't keeping dogs around that didn't make the grade for them. Right. But now, um, great trainers, uh, they make silk purses out of pigs' ears every day of the week. Okay? Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm going to go back to a Labrador story. One of the worst field-bred labs I ever trained in my entire life uh, went on to be an AKC master hunter. And the only reason the dog where it is is it's had really good training for me and then another pro down the down its career. Um, and that other pro had actually included it in their breeding program. 
And I said, I don't think you want to breed to that dog. You know, Mm -hmm. he's a great dog because he's had great training. And for our last commercial break, guys, I just want to tell y'all how excited I am about this new dog jughead that I got. No products. Just want to share my excitement. Um, I'm really thrilled to be working from him. I want to give a special thank you to Curtis Brooks Sr. for uh, giving me the dog out of his kennel. You know, he just had a, a, a number of dogs and one of them wasn't getting worked and he's got all the talent in the world. Bone straight, poker straight tail. So stay on the lookout for him. He'll be my, my next male that I'm bringing on up right behind Vegas. He's a year old. So, you know, just stay 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 abreast of the uh, the updates because this dog is going to be nice. And, uh, you know, and then I got Miss Ann coming in and she she's really turning the corner. I got her over some illness stuff not too long ago. So she's really turning the corner. Um, and we're talking about her a good amount in this podcast as well. So, you know, just giving you guys a little bit of air to breathe. And I know this podcast episode is long, but thank you for uh, rocking in there and, and, and rocking out with us. Stay tuned. I was saying, I, I hate to mention names, but I will. Look at a lot of LHU pointers. You know, today, I'm an LHU guy. And now. then go back and look at the LHU pointers in Bob's book, Wing and Shot. They are not the same. <laughs> I, they are absolutely not I mean, the same have, type of LHU. They aren't even remotely the same. They are not you know, the same. Wing and Shot is the earliest LHU stuff. Like, And I love that book. And, and, and I love Snakefoot also, but Snakefoot was late LHU. Yeah, but but even even Snakefoot himself, those dogs look significantly different yep. than a lot of the dogs that carry the LHU name today. Yep. And I'm not sure if Bob was alive, he would be a big fan of some of the dogs that bear the LHU name today. Oh, I know for a fact he wouldn't be. I'm trying to be. I mean, I'm I don't trying, know that for a fact, but like, I can I can damn well understand why he wouldn't be thrilled. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I I step on a lot of toes, and uh, I'm trying to tread gently. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's some tragic examples. I mean, I had a dog come in here years ago that was literally out of snake foot, and it looked like it had been run over by a car. I yeah. mean, its legs were all crooked, and it's toes were as long as my fingers and had a big old sickle tail and I mean this dog was just a flaming trade wreck and the guy was all proud that he had this LQ snakefoot dog Mine's is like, a, my dog is a snakefoot dog and it damn sure don't look like that <laughs> yeah yeah so wow. I, I think you know I, I think you know a lot of the field breedings that take place um you know, I think a lot are well attentioned, but I think a lot of them should never have taken place in the first place. You know, um, it's it's uh, I don't know. Uh, look at look at Europe and how they breed dogs over there and how strict they are and the the test confirmation before the dog is bred. And you know, it's America. You know, have a six pack. You know, have a pack of cigarettes and go breed your dog. You know, the downside of there's there's man, there's a lot of upsides to the way we do things in our country. But there are there are some downsides, you know, and and uh, they're they're pretty obvious if you want to look. Yeah. So I ain't gonna hold you up too much longer, but I did have to poke at your brain a whole lot more because I I just had to. Going going along with the whole human psychology part, the, the thing that I find most discouraging 
in sort of the sporting dog, dog training world is that the, the people that just flat out refuse to look at another method for whatever reason. Either they say, look, mine works. Why should I change? Be better. Why wouldn't you be open to it? Uh, people that automatically discount certain methods because, you know, Oh, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to throw cookies at dogs like that guy on the podcast up in Vermont at Snowbound Kennels. I'm not a cookie trainer. Like, dude, what's your emotional attachment to how you train dogs? Okay, um, and anyone that thinks it's cookie training knows nothing about offering conditioning and reward-based marker training. And of course, people feel threatened that I don't know something and I should, and I'm the pro, so. Rather than say, hey, I got to look into this, they just double down and say, well, the guy's an idiot. It's nothing we need. And the dog can take it. And it always comes back to the dogs can take it. Look at him run. No matter what I've done to it, look at him run, right. which segues into my dislike of the end justifies the mean training, right. okay, where people look at the finished product and say, well, he came out uh, okay in the end. So the way I did it must have been intelligent way to train them or a fair way to train them or a compassionate way to train them. And it's like me throwing empty beer bottles at the direct TV box until I hit the right button and it changes the channel. (laughs) That that is a fabulous new method Alex Sparks invented for changing the channel. I'm going to write a book and you got to buy my special beer bottle that's specially weighted to throw just right. And here's this great method, revolutionary method, evolutionary method for changing the channel on your on your direct TV box. It works just because it works. It's a stupid idea. And like I'm always trying to look at things and go, is this truly a better way or is this just another way? And if it's another way or a better way, what are the advantages, the disadvantages and try and be open enough to see that. And I'm standing here with both hands in the air saying I disparage reward-based training, although I'll cover it again. I don't do hardly any of that with adult bird dog training. If I had a young uh, pointer pup, man, I'd be a lot of reward-based marker training. Depends on who you talk to, whether it's 10 to 14 weeks or 12 to 16 weeks, depending on who you talk to, what research you look at, 10 to 14 weeks or 12 to 16 weeks is a super important critical development time for puppies. But it also has an overlap with their second fear time. And if you can teach the puppies to do some stuff you want in the long run Mm -hmm. during that time frame, it's like really helps. It can be amazing, but most people aren't trying to teach their puppies whoa at 11 or 12 weeks. I was trying to teach my, my pup whoa soon as he came out at the food bowl. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a that's a great thing to do, but also that uh, overlaps with that second fear period. So you've got to make sure your dog doesn't have any bad experiences there, maybe a blank pistol too close, maybe a stack of uh, food pans falling over on the concrete. you got to be careful there. Yeah. So <sighs> circling back to... to why people are emotionally attached, you know, it's probably just a little insecurity. You know, I want to feel good about myself. And this guy, you know, up in Vermont, who I've never heard of, what, how many national championships is Alex Sparks won? Okay. I, you know, 
where is he and all the where's all the magazine articles? How come he's not writing magazine articles? How come he doesn't have a DVD? But a guy doesn't even have a website. You know, why on earth should we listen to him? I'm like, yeah, listen to the message. Don't pay quite as much attention to the messenger. And if, you know, you think it's out there, you know, look at the videos on my Facebook page. Come to Vermont, hang out with me. Yeah. <laughs> People are welcome. Yeah. We get a lot of phone calls lately. And, uh, you know, uh, my greatest current wish is, you know, to have you up here, you know, for, God, I'd love to hear for a couple weeks, you know, to be yeah, okay. in and and, uh, heck, you come up for the whole summer, but I think you got too many balls in the air to do that. I got too many balls in the air and too many babies to feed, man. Um, yeah. But, no, I definitely want to come up there and, and, and hang out with you. Um, Vermont is actually on my list of very significant places I need to be anyway. Um, I got a, another buddy up that way. So I, I'm yeah. going to take you up on that one. Um, that, it's just literally about, so and, and I know fun. my wife actually likes it up there. We were trying to get up there to see the weather anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so we'll figure it out. But but look, 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 last thing you I'm going to segue into another thing that you talked about um, that I just had a mic drop moment, I guess. Um, you said there's a word metacognitive, which yep. means thinking about the way you think. And most people are tragically unaware of their own thought processes and foolishly believe they're masters of their will. But instead, they just forge blindly forward following what they've been told or what they want to believe that was just i i hear you you spoke to me there barely graduated high school but for some reason i kind of learned how to learn along the way and ended up really curious about a lot of things and have done my armchair study on brain science and human psychology just because it helps me deal with people in a better way. I understand where people are coming from when they do things that uh, I just don't make sense to me. Mm. And yeah, um, thinking about how you're thinking, uh, metacognitive, why, why am I thinking this way? What influences why I'm thinking this way? Is it, is it my ego? Um, am I embarrassed? Uh, do I want to be the smartest guy in the room? I mean, there's, there's a real common dog thing where you find someone that that gets some information and they kind of end up in a training group or they form a training group and they want to be the smartest person in the training group. Okay, that's where they're comfortable. Okay. <laughs> when I don't know something, man, fish in a big pond. I want to go out and find um, the information I need and I'm just comfortable not knowing stuff. Okay. Right. And you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable feeling that they don't know stuff. And I think part of it's the American culture. You know, if, if you don't know something, you make a mistake in this culture, you're generally ostracized. You're an idiot. You're a fool. Mm -hmm. You're mocked. You know, there's other countries and other cultures where they think making mistakes is part of the learning process. Absolutely. And you aren't an idiot or a fool because people all, I mean, weekly people go, he will give me some compliment on my dog training skills. And I'm like, man, I wasn't born this way. Yeah. You know, 30 years well, ago. It, it becomes a thing back. where it's like, who are you to not make a mistake? Like, everybody's going to make a mistake. Everyone does, but a lot of people don't want to own up to their mistakes and say it's wrong. I mean, one of my favorite examples is clay target shooting. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've shot a little sporting clay, shot a little feet test. And how rare is it to hear someone go, 
man, I, I put the gun in the wrong place today. It was, I was just putting the gun in the wrong place. No, I had the wrong choke. I had the wrong choke manufacturer. I had the wrong shot size. I had the wrong feet per second. My comb needs to be adjusted one millimeter. I need longer barrels. I've had enough of this browning. I got to get myself a Parazzi or a Krigoff. Mm-hmm. It's always, always equipment so much of the time. And, you know, just kind of human nature. I right. think as I stand it, we want to feel good about ourselves. And we don't feel good about ourselves if we don't think we know something or we're bad at something. Absolutely. But it's just part of the, man, it's just part of the learning process. You, you got to make mistakes. You got to be curious. You got to, mm-hmm. you know, if people weren't curious and looking for new stuff and new ways, like we're still like in caves, you know, it, right. it takes it takes people to be curious and open minded. And I think that's so important with dogs because they're on the sharp end of the stick when it comes to some training methods. So let me ask you this. This is my last question. What are you most curious about about a dog, a bird dog? What am I most what? What are you most curious about about a bird dog? <sighs> what? Am I most curious? You have to show me a curveball at the end when I'm Mister Philosophical. Yeah, I had to. I had to. You know, I would. I would, I would actually like to know. Um, it may have been measured, but I would like to know the levels of dopamine and serotonin that are released in a dog's brain when it's on point. Okay, people have long theorized. There we go. The I, so I have said that. I've said dogs get highs off of being on point. Yeah, I, I, I mean, they have the same feel-good, the same feel-good uh, chemicals in their bodies that we do. And as I understand it, retrievers get that big dump in anticipation of a retrieve. Like right. if they're on steady, if you're keeping them steady online, they feel best before you cut them loose. Right. As I understand it, pointers get it while hunting, but also more on point i would just like to know what levels and with what dogs and what birds and just know more about what they were actually smelling okay oh there's a topic for you yeah i think part of what bird dogs smell is the bird's breath you think so Uh, absolutely and i've actually conducted some experiments that okay come on uh, man we can't never get off of here because you keep coming up with cool stuff so now we got to go into that so give me some details on what do you mean you conducted an experiment so i had heard years (laughs) i had heard years ago that a component maybe bob whaley you know, was it in wing and shot? Maybe uh-huh. that he thought that a component of what the dog smelled was their breath. And I read that, and I'm kind of like, oh yeah, right. I got homing pigeon law, and a little light was coming through a crack in the wall, and there was this homer sitting on a perch. And every time that bird exhaled, there was a plume of steam in front of that bird's beak, the size of like a party balloon. I mean, it was. It was 10 or 12 inches long and six inches in diameter. Really? And I went, <laughs> that's exactly what I said. I said, really? Because I would imagine it was like this little puff, you know, like the size of a salt shaker or something. I said, if a, if a um, uh, carbon dioxide and, and scent from inside its body, man, what, what does a pheasant do? What does a grouse do? So I, I've thrown that around for years and people tell me I'm on crack and I always like to experiment, you know, yeah. um, I've shot patterns, you know, with my shotgun at a hundred yards to see what it looks like. 
Um, so I did a little experiment. Um, I took a dead hen pheasant and put it in a big Ziploc bag. Okay. I took a live hen pheasant and put it in a Ziploc bag, the kind with the, the slide across the top, you know, yeah. that holds them pretty well. And I put them both out in the field and I cut my uh, guardrail fired uh, uh, pointer, zoom, zoom loose, mm-hmm. and she fires up the field. Okay. She runs by that dead bird with just its head sticking out and her head snapped that direction briefly, but she didn't stop. She hammers up the field another 50 yards and goes on point on a pheasant in a plastic bag with its head sticking out of the plastic bag. Interesting. Now, you always got to try. I, I try and look at stuff scientifically. Okay. Was there bird scent on the outside of the bag? Had I handled the bird? Had feathers come off? Was there any other factor? Because there's some interesting things on how dogs smell in the bird dog world, but in the real world of canine olfaction, which is detection dogs, right. okay, drug dogs, bomb dogs, the some of the foremost experts in the country that understand vapor pressure and what a dog actually smells, says we're in kindergarten right. when it comes to understanding a dog's nose. Right. Like we put all sorts of ingredients together and we smell a cake, right? Mm-hmm. Dogs probably smell oil, flour cooked eggs, maybe chocolate. They probably smell all those individual components. So, I I, I mean, how much of a harder time do dogs have finding a dead bird than a live bird? Okay. Well, the breathing, dead birds aren't. Right. You know, how could, how could, we have, what, 60,000 scent receptors in our nose and dogs have 2 million? Well, their nose is like that. Their nose is like our eyes. Right. They gather so much information. I recently termed dog urine as dog Facebook. Okay, because when when a dog when a dog pees, he puts out information like we do on Facebook. Who I am, what's my social status, how much testosterone in me, how much estrogen, how high have I peed on this tree? It's just Facebook for dogs. Dogs come along and they gather all that information, just like you looking at my Facebook page. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting to think about. Okay. <laughs> I mean, putting it that way, it really brings it, I guess, make it contextualizes it, you know. It's like we know a lot, but I think there, there may be more we don't know than we do know. And... I, I guess that would be a better answer to your question than whether dopamine and serotonin levels on point. What the heck is all the stuff we don't know that we maybe have no idea about that could help us train these dogs uh, to be to be better dogs in a more effective way and hopefully in a more uh, fair, uh, fair, humane, and compassionate manner. Right. That's interesting. Okay. Well, I think we. I, I, I think that was a good way to bring it on in, man. I, I really do. Um, you know, and it's just it was just that extra piece that I wanted to get in. All right.
guys. I hope you all enjoyed that very long episode at three hours and 30 minutes. But I appreciate y'all for making it to the end of the episode and hanging in there. I know Alex and I can talk a lot. And that is indicative of our normal conversations. And Lord, if you see our text message conversations. <laughs> but I uh, I had to I had to be thorough about it. And, and you guys know, man, I I'm good for a long episode, but I hope it was as informative as I thought it would be. Um, I just want to end by saying thank you to all my sponsors, my title sponsor, Onyx Hunt, um, my next sponsor, Yukonuba uh, Sporting Dog, my next AYA Fine Guns, Biometrix Supplements, and our affiliates, Garmin Fish and Hunt, Dakota 283 Kennels. Guys, go check out my nonprofit, Minority Outdoor Alliance. Um, Ashley and I have been working diligently on uh, some upcoming product projects, not products, projects um, slated to be uh, happening in October. So I'll give you guys more details on that soon as we, uh, you know, as we get more details and and get more settled into uh, the logistics of it. Also, I want to give a special shout out to Filson. If you guys have been checking my social media out, um, the Filson catalog has recently (laughs) released some stuff with myself chuck reagan and paul reagan his brother um and it was a fun weekend down in florida so i won't spoil it too much go check out the filson catalog and also i want to just go back to a wonderful weekend with um the good folks at the orvis company eric taub will hereford kara um Everybody that was there, Reed, Bryant, Julia Zima, everybody that helped get this thing uh, situated and, and, and done. And, you know, Woody was there. It just it was a wonderful weekend down in Thomasville and in Sylacauga um, and here in Atlanta. I want to thank the Georgia, Florida Shooting Dog Handlers Club for also being in attendance and and Andrew Bozeman for offering us the space to run at Deco Plantation. So this was good, man. I really had a good time. So I want to thank you all for that. Um, And guys, just, you know, go check out everything that I have going on and catch the next episode coming very, very, very soon. Thanks so much. Talk to y'all later.